everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Train fast, be fast. The Power Athlete mantra has never rang more true than on today's episode with NASCAR driver Corey LaJoy. We dive deep into his training, mental prep, and evolution as a pro stock car driver. The crew gives LaJoy the hard-hitting questions like, have you ever shit your pants after a sketchy burrito as a result of G-forces? And while not every question is quite that sophisticated, we did learn just how Corey's body is put through the ringer from an entire day of only left turns. LaJoy says that depending on the track, his legs are often so fatigued and shaky from competing that he's unable to effectively drive home his Dodge Caravan, or what we would assume is his daily driver. All right, find out what Corey really whips around in as his daily driver and what he's got laying around his garage today. Here it is, episode 345. Is it time to bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme? Yes, John's back. Jean Wellbornet. We got, no of, with the show. Yeah, we got rid of his Ladies ass. and gentlemen, welcome to another <laughs> premiere. No, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Welcome to another premiere episode of the Strength and Conditioning Podcast. Uh, no, you fucked that up, did no, you? No, that's the new one. Isn't it the premiere oh. podcast in Strength and Conditioning? Hey. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Wellborn thought there was no more triple ing. It's only ing. it's a d- <laughs> No. There's no more Well, the, the only way you're getting an ing out of me is if I say Got strength it. and conditioning. Ing. Ing. Got it. So now I'm going to oh, have to we'll do it. it. It's a premiere podcast. What is it, Wellborn's uh, uh, strength and what? what was strength it? and... Uh, I can't remember. What's the name of that restaurant with all the handwriting on the wall? Uh, shenanigans. Shenanigans. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the premiere podcast on strength and conditioning, Power Athlete Radio. I am Luke. Dex. John and John, the big guy, CEO and special father. guest, special guest. That's right, friend We're, of the podcast, friend of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> he's been out of the game a little bit because of you know travels, Tra- well injury, injury, uh, s- surgery, surgery, and travels. Mm-hmm. Pa- papers, business papers. <laughs> hey, what do you do for a living? I'm unemployed. Um, no, ladies and gentlemen, we're not just going to jab movie quotes, quotes at you today. Uh, we are talking speed. Yes. And not in the sense that you would expect on strength and conditioning podcast, but no. um, in one that, in the sense that we are, well, I know, John, you're a big car guy. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, to have somebody on from NASCAR is huge. Mm-hmm. I've always been a fan of NASCAR and just really anything that goes fast where you just have to turn left a lot. But then we learned that it's not all turning left. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I got to go right. Mm-hmm. And then his neck hurts. Yes, that is true. <laughs> He's an ambi turner, <laughs> 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 which is a Zoolander reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we have Corey LaJoy on the podcast today. Before that, ladies and gentlemen, what are you doing? Are you exercising? Are you just wasting time like our intern who showed up for a week and just, what, what, what were you calling it? Like free grazing? Uh, uh, freestyling. Freestyling? Yeah, it was freestyling. But for aimlessly? context, we got a new intern. Yes. Yeah, we did Aimless, get a new intern. Aimlessly showing up to the gym. So his first assignment was show up. <laughs> and okay. then after a week? Yeah. And, and after a week of observation, um, we realized he has no clue what to do in the gym. And that's not unique. And he shouldn't be ashamed. No one has taught him. And if you are a proverbial intern, and you're just freestyling your training, what are you doing? Power Athlete has a training program for you. Head to powerathletehq.com slash training, and there'll be a little button there that says get started and take our little survey and see what program's right for you. We've got programs for uh, on-field sport athletes. We have programs for dudes and chicks trying to get 
jacked and sculpted and shredded. We have programs for people who love to hit that high intensity interval style training. We have programs for people who are on a time restricted schedule that need flexibility in their training. We have programs that are stackable, go, they're, they're little add-ons to whatever training you're doing. I'm thinking Iron Flex, which helps you become a better mover, a more efficient mover. We got it all. We literally, literally have it all. We do. We've, this, these are all from the depths and shadows of Wellborn's <laughs> programming, twisted, pro, twisted programming mind. You guys have seen that. What, what was the movie with uh, um, Jennifer Lopez, what's called The Cell? Yeah, I love it. I actually I have not it. seen it. Where she like goes into that yes. like dude's mind. Yes, and, Vince Vaughn. Yeah, Vince Vaughn. Yeah, and J-Lo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. Yeah. You got, it's morbid. That's, that is it. That's kind of what's in my mind. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's demented. <laughs> yeah, and for people who are like following Johnny Wad, which is like burned uh, down, they, they know exactly what uh, that is. Something a bone to pick. Um, uh, so... You know what really grinds um, John's gear? No, no. Um, what's his name? Um, uh, ben Cooch uh, hit me up and he wanted a lot more detail on the run stuff on the hammer program. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was pretty interesting because I kind of left it. Uh, For context, what is the hammer program? So the, uh, the hammer is the holistic athlete movement readiness program. Uh, it's it's really our warfighter program um, in terms of getting people not only ready for the fight but ready to kick indoors. If it looks like you you know you have to like I said kick indoors, move something heavy in a tactical environment, and I hate the word tactical, so we use warfighter. But military, but, yeah, LEO, yeah. fire, and so the program uh, has more kind of um, you know sprint, middle distance, and longer kind of runs, getting people not only ready for PT tests but for selections and whatnot. And so I kind of. Naturally, through the writing of the programs, I find ways to back into the effect that I want without giving too much information because I found the more information I get, the more crippling things become. And I think people can overanalyze. And Ben hit me up and was like, you know, kind of went into this big thing. And I was like, okay, I'll, I, I, I have a plan on what I want uh, you know, to accomplish in the running, and I'll give more detail. Uh, I just purposely kind of back into it because I just need you guys to just do this. Run, yeah. Yeah, just run. Um, so the big run also like just to clarify too, not do what the traditional like PT is just like, okay, go run 10 miles. No, 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 like hit middle distances at higher intensities. Yeah. So it kind of works into like a sprint, kind of like a middle kind of, uh, like longer, you know, like sprint kind of like more middle distance, special endurance we can call it. And, uh, it was interesting cause I keep getting, Hey, can you list some subs? And so for the other stuff, I, I'm like, hey, just, you know, if it's a if it's a 5K, just, you know, row or, you know, ride a 5K. But for the sprint stuff, I put in like a whole different set of requirements. Like, hey, if you're going to run 700 meter sprints, full recovery. And so I put, hey, if this is if you're doing a salt bike, or you're doing something else. Here's the workout for that. And it's very different. And these guys are like, well, why is it different? And my comment was, do you believe riding the assault bike is the same as sprinting, that they should be held in the same time domains? And these guys couldn't wrap their heads around that. Right. And my comment is, there's no substitute for sprinting. So you're getting a glycolytic, uh, more like, yeah, you know, 10, yeah, like 10 rounds, 50 seconds, max effort. And these guys were like asking these questions like they were like, well, we, I'm like, no, 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 no. There's no replacement for sprinting. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care what implement it is. Like, even on like, and I do love the true form and I love, uh, I think it's bitching. But at the end of the day, running on flat ground on you know and running as fast as you can there's no substitute for that mm-hmm. and i um you know and i'm like i i'll give you something to do if you cannot go outside and sprint right i'll give you something to do 
but don't think that what you're doing on the assault, and this guy's like, well, 20 seconds all out on the assault bike's hard. I'm like, no, it's not as fucking hard as running. Do you know why, how I know that? Because I fuck, because we run. But you know why sprint. it's not hard for him? Because he's not going as Because he's not good. He's not good at running. He's not good at sprinting. So uh, yeah. the coordinative demand for it to be as taxing and miserable as possible, you have to be good at it. And you know how yeah. you get good at it? By sprinting. Exactly. Well, and but it, you know what? That's the thing about these fixed pattern stationary like uh, air resisted or chain belt resisted devices is like there is no margin for error. You just push as hard as you can well, for maximal exertion. And there's, there's no coordinative response. And there's no eccentric load. Right. So the strength and the power and the really the stimulus comes from not only putting your foot in the ground, ripping it off, and then the acceleration and the deceleration mm-hmm. and all the components of it. And as we've said many times... The only way you get faster at running is by running as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Like so, like there's no way for and my and I ask these guys, I'm like, do you think that doing max effort sprints on the assault bike will make you a faster sprinter? Like because at the end of the day, Maybe like for a window, like the- yeah, no, 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 like like and and uh, I even said, I'm like, dude, let's not argue about energy systems here because I don't give a fuck what you say about energy systems. Uh, when we talk about maximal top end speed, there's no energy system for that. You either are or you aren't. Like, there's guys who are out of shape that are fucking faster than you. Now, they might not be able to do repeated efforts. Mm-hmm. But, like, at the end of the day, if you're in a tactical or, like, a, a fucking warfighter environment and you got to hock some dude 15 yards, you don't get six fucking reps at it. Mm-hmm. So, it, it just, uh, as I was answering these questions, man, I, like, I'm just amazed that people would even assume that a fucking assault bike sprint would be similar yeah, to a sprint. No. And, and I'm like, dude. Or I'm, double unders. Right? Yeah, that's or, my or double favorite. unders. That's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Like, what sub can I run? Can I do double unders and box jumps? She's like, no. That's not fucking, like, mm-hmm. The closest thing is probably trampoline sprints. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And even that is not it. But, uh, the, and I'm going to hold it, Tex. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, the, the, it comes down to what I think, in my opinion, and I, I think CrossFit has done because I was this person too, in terms of the, the barometer of an effective training exercise or workout. Well, we're talking about fitness. I understand. You can squat, oh. uh, like, you know. But we know that, right? But people don't. People think in order to be effective and to order to have to ha- a positive training response, I'm not saying all people, but I think it's a common it's a common misnomer for someone to think the only way training provided a positive form of stress, in our language, not theirs, is that they achieve this distress well, signal, uh, which is like burned down, sizzling bacon, and well, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Well, right? think about this, right? Like just taking the time to I mean, let's say after you, I, I want you to go out and I want want you to run one hundred or seven hundred meter max effort sprints. Hundred meter max effort sprint. Now, right? like eleven uh, seconds from yeah, me. Yeah. Okay. Right. So anywhere, let's say. <laughs> okay, Dusty. Call call it like thirteen to seventeen seconds. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> what we know in terms of recovery, even for somebody that has a big aerobic base, it's in shape. It will take anywhere from three to five out to 12 minutes to be able to max full recovery, to be able to go back in there and do that sprint. And the only way you know is you test your first one, your fastest one, and then you have to be able to run within 92% of your fastest time. Mm-hmm. And it, and then if you, if you can't, you got to rest longer. Mm-hmm. So uh, like, like there's a very real way to do this, to be able to get, to put together these 700 meter sprints as fast as I can. Do you think that seven all-out max effort sprints on the assault bike for fifteen seconds. for fifteen seconds that you would need ten minutes to recover in between? Like it, it just doesn't. Like I can't. Like my brain is like a short circuiting on this information. Also, I, go quickly on that point. Yeah, no, you get. It. 
we used to reference as an example during the program lecture at the the old bleep fit football clinics. <laughs> no, we can call. Compare. We can use the word CrossFit. We no, just no, can't, no, no. We just can't print it on a shirt. Bleep fit oh. football. But it's referencing making the connection <laughs> to the back squat one RM is yep. to help bridge this gap in understanding because they've never experienced the feeling of a sprint one RM. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we would reference that to help bridge that gap. That's a good point. Well, uh, you know, um, so like, like I'll, I'll talk later in the podcast, we went to this uh, Fortlandia thing and one of the dads who, who I'm buddies with, we were, you know, rapping about training and he's like, you know, uh, you know, typical like grindstoner, like 40 years old, you know, this, I got, you know, I, I uh, he likes to hunt. He's put on a couple extra pounds and he, we were kind of just talking about it and he was asking me some nutrition questions and training and I always go back to the same thing. Two things that happen as you age. You lose mitochondrial density and you, you lose the ability to recruit motor units. So you got to have a big aerobic base and you got to lift some form of heavy weights and you got to attempt to do it fast. So, you know, violent intent to be able to recruit max uni- uh, motor units. Um, you know, and I said, dude, you could go use something like the PowerDot devices and get max motor unit recruitment, but you have to pair it in, con- in concert with a training program that allows you to do this. Just you going in and writing your Peloton three to five days a week isn't going to drive the stimulus that we need. Now, that's a big aerobic base, but we have to stack it on top with moving fucking heavy weights fast. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no way to do that. There's no way to sub that. I don't know how to sub that. Like, I don't know how to sub a sprint. There's no way. Like, the only way you get faster at running is by running faster. Trampoline sprint. And runs, uh, but that, even that's more of a technique thing. Yep. We like the tramp sprints because it teaches people turnover, get yeah, their knee up, reaction, yeah, ground reaction, reaction, force. So that's a tool. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. like that's a tool to allow you to fucking go fast. But wouldn't you rather? So I'm all like, there's no permanent sub for a sprint. I think maybe that's where we're not connected. But if you the weather's inclement or you don't have quick access to uh, a track or a stretch. Yeah. You're better served in the grand scheme of improving sprint or the sprinting, like long term longitudinal sprint training on a trampoline sprint. Yeah. Wall drills. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh, wall drills. Um, uh, I mean, we used to use a ton of banded resisted sprints. Uh, mm. uh, I did those with Roth for fucking years, but uh, there was also violent intent and we were also well conditioned because we sprinted yes. outside. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem that I run into with the trampolines or with the um, banded resisted sprints, and we saw this at our Bleed Fit football seminars, <laughs> uh, people were unaccustomed <laughs> to lifting heavy weights and moving as fast as they can. Mm-hmm. And the amount of fucking injuries that we mm-hmm. saw. I mean, do you remember when we were in New York and that dude's fucking Achilles shot up like a Venetian blind? And we were like, oh, God, it was like mm-hmm. a ball. Uh, He's like, usually I, a dozen people. I think I hurt, my, uh, I think I hurt mm-hmm. myself. And I was like, uh, no, you ruptured your fucking Achilles. How did I do that? Well, we said to you at the beginning, hey, if you don't sprint regularly, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, I, I do sprint. I yeah. just didn't mean you sprint. It was funny how, like, with each injury, the the length of that, the preamble leading into that <laughs> increased by two minutes <laughs> to explain in detail Sprinting multiple is, times is what? not 200 yards around the block okay. of your gym. <laughs> yeah, your recovery runs. Yeah, yeah. And it's, man, ah. Uh, so uh, to, to highlight a positive sprinting, Josh, one of our Block One coaches out in Hawaii, who works with an array yeah, yeah. of athletes, military, some kids, athletes, and that also gen pop classes, there have been violent attacks and, and shootings in Hawaii. So it is real, the importance of sprinting. So now people are finally starting to listen to Josh as he coaches. Mm-hmm. And 
they are presenting this real life, oh crap, I need this to him versus him Wait, so preaching. Why are they like gang to violence? Uh, oh, to, oh, yeah, yeah. to help st- stay well, what, safe. What's the cause of the, I, the violence? I couldn't you know? tell you. I haven't dug in, but just speaking with Joss, he presented this and I thought, man, well, if that's what it takes to get Fucking by, yeah. dive and drive. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it just. Um, but his. But going back to that, his people are seeing great results, right? Oh now, yes, and now they're they're dialing and sprinting with intent, and seeing the that benefits. Was, that was something that I uh, emphasized in my talk for the NSCA. Um, the idea of intent, like the intent to be able to move as fast as you can, to be able to move a barbell violently, like that's something that um, I've really been resonating on. This idea of like like focused intent, like I'm going to intend to do this and I'm going to put all of my mental, physical and emotional energy into doing this task. And I think what happens in the training space is we lose this um, kind of, I mean, it's not cog- cognitive disconnect, but like we almost kind of go into that, uh, you know, the pain cave and we kind of go into ourselves where we kind of you know go on autopilot and everything has to be very like great intent, very deliberate within how you're doing everything, you know, and like I, I, I love the cliches of, you know, how you do something is how you do everything. And it's just like, uh, no, what, you're going to fucking go as fast as you can. Th- there was a lot of intent with how Corey spoke of driving and particularly the different turns that you got to approach and then coming mm-hmm. into the pits. And I thought that was cool to reference this. So when I'm driving and, and pulling oh in God. to the, the power G's? athlete ranch pit, Right off of Hamilton Pool. <laughs> hey, I fifty. I just cap out at fifty-five miles an hour, five hundred yards no, to slow dri- down. So to, I just hit Texas. Uh, Tex turns his signal on two miles in advance. That starts hitting the brakes. That's not a bad idea. Uh, what yeah. I do, what I do is I go as fast as I can and I just hit the e brake <laughs> yeah. and I fucking power slide, power slide and then I take the e brake off and I shoot open. What, what's your they range on the drifting. gate opener? Uh, I usually call Kate ahead of time as I'm coming Kate in. Open hot. the gate, I'm two miles like, out. Yeah, so that's what I tell her. I like, I'll, I'll fucking call her. I'll be like, hey, open the gate because I'm coming in hot. I'm drift king. Oh, yeah. And then I hit the e brake, I fucking power slide through there and then just shoot it in. It's really, it's pretty amazing to see. The kids are usually scared shitless. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's because they're don't, you don't like, have seatbelts in your truck. I'll be like, are you guys buckled in? Because we're going fucking full yard sale on this. <laughs> I was talking to uh, Harry Shaw about summer strong plans this year. He's like, you think you'll go? Like, do, is anything conflicting? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm sure John has it marked on his calendar. He's like, does he like summer strong that much? I'm like, no, he just likes renting minivans and trashing them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, he needs at least a minivan to trash every three months. So that means we're due. Dude, I <laughs> fucking, I will get out on the Is track. That, am I wrong? Dude, I'll be like, you get your NASCAR, you give me a minivan, and I'm going to show you what fucking rubbing and racing it's, is. Corey, I think we're on to something. If you're listening, man, what can we do to get a minivan series going? I love it. So um, my personal, uh, like I got a bucket list. He was talking about bucket list. My One of my bucket lists is that. Uh, we race in the Gambler 500. Yeah. In a minivan? Uh, it's like you get any car under 500 five, bucks. Yeah, yeah. so you got to buy 500 bucks, uh, you buy a vehicle. And, so, uh, yeah, a minivan. You and, can, then, yeah. and then it's all dirt off-road. And yeah. they have recovery vehicles. And dudes are like 86, you know, Caprice Classic that they got from some grandma for 500 bucks. And they're fucking out there racing it. Mm-hmm. Like, literally jumping it off of things. And it's like a 500-mile race through in Oregon. But you're allowed to, like... Kit it up, right? Well, you you can spend. spend, Oh, you're supposed to. The way it works is you're supposed to spend five hundred dollars, but I'm sure you can put money into the car. But the best fucking gamblers are the dudes who just like 
we didn't do anything to it. We're fucking off-roading it. And they just fucking fuck these things up. It is, uh, I, I follow him on Instagram and like, uh, like DJ, like whenever we're talking about stuff, I'm like, he'll, he'll text me, Dick, man, I found us a gambler car. And like, uh, there's a dude in Texas somewhere that has a, um, uh, a four-door Mark Link, uh, Lincoln Mark IV, like the big four-door boats from the 80s on a set of 40s that he put on a blazer chassis or like, you know, lifted and like, I like said to DJ, he's like, oh, we could get that and we could gamble that thing. So here's what's confusing about this. Of like all the things I've witnessed you kind of get involved in and accomplish and achieve and acquire and the means at which you do it. 500 bucks in a road trip to Oregon is like the lowest barrier of entry. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you waiting for, man? Uh, well, I... Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. No, it's... Uh, yeah. We should, you got a trailer. You got should, a truck to haul it. You just, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we have everything to it's do it. It's just getting out and to do it? Yeah, it's just uh, uh, like somehow... Is 2020 the year of the gambler? I, dude, I, I, I'd like to try to do it if we could... Uh, like You want to do it right. I, I, like I, you I got wanna, a vision. I want to do it as a team. Mm-hmm. I, I want a team environment for the if gambler. I, if, it's, if it's truly like a $500... $500. Now, so you, but you got 1000 bucks probably. There's other people that I'm sure spend more. Oh, no, I know what you mean. But yeah. I would have to do it... You're not... With, me, yeah. No, no. I like, mm-hmm. uh, like, I want to do a station wagon. June 26th and 28th. So what I want to do is I want to find a station wagon. Mark, and uh, on the I want to put multiple seats on it because I want to gamble with like all of everybody in one car, mm-hmm. but I want to turn the station wagon into a convertible, but I want to build full tube. Uh, their, um, their logo is very power athlete esque. Oh, we feel like we should sponsor the gambler. Okay. Like, like we should, we, we should be somewhere in there. But the cool thing I really like about it is part of the responsibility of the gambler is they have to pick up trash. Oh, okay. So when you're driving on the road, if you see trash, you got to pick it up. So like you go, yeah. So, like, you're not allowed to litter, and, like, part of the thing is they go through and they clean everything up, but if you guys watch it on YouTube, it is the best. I'm intrigued. Let's I, get on the calendar. I love it. Let's get on the calendar. So, so there's another thing called, um, uh, there's, um, I think it's called the Ratty Muscle Car Race, where uh, you have to buy a piece of crap muscle car, and then you take it, then you have to drive it, like, 100 miles to a drag race, mm-hmm. and that's somewhere, like, that's another one. That Quarter mile. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, it's it's pretty amazing. Like to see what people do with these things. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a Toyota Corolla on like 33s. Well, we're talking speed, people, <laughs> and we're not talking gambler speed today. We're talking like, NASCAR Cup speed. So we're talking to Corey LaJoy. Uh, yeah, what was that Helen, Eleanor Roosevelt quote? Talking speed, American oh. hot, nasty speed. <laughs> the quote that led off Talladega Nights, it's definitely not Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I did like uh, the, the, the fact that those guys, I mean, you, you would have to. It's kind of like, uh, you know, like uh, Ricky Bobby is, you know, like I'm surprised he doesn't have his face on the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Let's see if it comes up. America, America's all about speed. Hot, nasty Badass speed. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, 1936. <laughs> well, with that, no, let's get with, uh, with no further ado, Corey LaJoy. Should we do it? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Give me the connection on this. Like, what's the... Uh... My, uh, my college pal, he started to represent athletes. So not our big four, big five sports. So Like represent, like, legally? Uh, yeah. Like domestic violence, like Corey, you can probably no, exposing no. yourself. Man- management. I know. I'm kidding. I'm just giving a bad <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah. I don't think I have any legal. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, at least. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got some awesome 
obscure sport athletes. And I was like, all right, line it up. Let's make it happen. And Corey was the first connection that he's kicking our way because we got the Daytona 500 coming up. So just relevant. Yeah, no, that's awesome. But um, unfortunately for you, every guest that he sends over from here on out, it's going to be a letdown after this show. Well, I think I mean, he... listen, I'm all about peaking early. <laughs> the year I was in sixth grade and that was it. Like and yeah. then it's been downhill since then, baby. Dude, uh, yesterday we went to there's like a, uh, Austin's pretty cool in that they have like a ton of like just interesting outdoor stuff to do. So there's this place called um, uh, Fortlandia. Have you heard of this? And it's like this huge, like ladybird, um, like b- botanical gardens, and they have all these crazy forts. So my wife's been like after me for months to go to this thing, and then finally, like this is our last day, so we go and uh, so we go out to this like Fortlandia, uh, you know, deal, and it's just like. Uh, but long story short, we went with some other families, and one of the guys was like, "Hey, uh, I randomly met a guy at my work. We were talking about podcasts, and he told me he listens to Power Athlete Radio. And this guy, John Walmart, and these guys, and he's like, dude, I know this guy. We have our kids together.' And uh, the guy's like, "Oh, it's great. They have the best guests." And I'm like, "How many of these does he listens to?" <laughs> Go back to episodes one <laughs> through two hundred and twenty. <laughs> I mean, it's not the guest's fault, really. It's our fault. <laughs> well, we our, our audio was really shitty when we began. It sounded like we were like um, uh, podcasting under the ocean. Yeah, really. Yeah. And then and then we were in Costa Mesa over in, in uh, and we were doing it in our office, and it seemed that we knew what the cadence and like what the schedule was for the trash pickup. So we tried to like you know because these fucking trucks would yeah. be like like big diesels. Kung, kung, it sounded like Erector sets, and then right. sure enough. They would come at random times whenever we were podcasting. We'd be like, and not to collect garbage, just to slam the dumpsters. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like, put them on the hooks and just slam them. Like, 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 looks like, there's no trash out there. They picked it up yesterday. There's run out and shake a newspaper. We're podcasting. And then they'd be like, yeah, Go to hell. <laughs> so we were like, ah, fucking that place, dude. Uh, but, so, Corey, I guess give us some background on you, man. Uh, so listeners hear our stories all the time, uh, but they don't get to hear yours. So take as long as you want and let it rip, man. Let these guys well, to, know what you're into. Leave, luck, luckily, it was for 10. If it was for 9.50, you'd have had the uh, trash guy drove, rolling by my place, too. So that worked out. <laughs> um but yeah, man, I'm just, uh, uh, this is my second, this will be my second, uh, full-time year in the cup series leading up to it. I've ran part-time. Uh, so last year I was full-time, uh, for a team called go fast, the 32 car behind, behind me, that one. Um, that was, I'll, we'll get to that story later on the podcast. Cause that's, I, that, this was not my idea. Uh, is that your face on the hood? That's my, yeah, that's my face on the hood. Uh, there, so that I won't, we'll get I to that because I'm fucking, not. I'm like, that's weird. I need that. It is weird, uh, but I'm the last guy who'd want their face. That, that, that's like something Ricky Bobby would do in Talladega Nights. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, didn't Ricky Bobby win uh, the NASCAR Cup Series? Uh, well, I think Ricky Bobby was the best driver to ever live. Yeah, hands down. Yeah. Wakes so up and pisses. He, even even <laughs> even he didn't have his face on the hood. Uh, so I have one up on him. I, I I just saw a deal with Joe Burrow where they listed the two best athletes from Louisiana as the water boy, the bourbon bowl <laughs> champion, and Joe Burrow. <laughs> so I get it. I get it. That's that's I'd say that's pretty accurate. Uh, 
so I'm just uh, – so my dad was a two-time uh, Xfinity Series champion, which was then Bush. It's like the AAA Series. Uh, and so naturally I grew up in the sport. Uh, and, and dad had some opportunities to go cup racing. Uh, but there's just so much more time commitment and, and you're going a lot more uh, being being at the highest level than you were, you know, it, being the Saturday guys, what they would call them. And uh, so he just decided to really stay at home, me and my brother, and kind of invest in that because we were, you know, seven and ten. So we were starting to, to figure out what we want to do and jump into racing. So dad really poured into me and my brother uh, and and kind of made my – kind of made our, our past tough um, – because he knew that that we weren't going to be able to buy our way to the top because that's uh, a, a not really a, a movement or anything it's just uh the the cost to race is so expensive now to where you know somebody with not not a whole lot of credentials behind them can just stroke a check to you know any given team and, and trump somebody who has some wins or maybe some credentials uh but that's just kind of the the, the way the game is right now um i starting to shift back uh, to where teams are starting to look for talented guys and, and the difference between somebody bringing some sponsorship versus somebody who can get them some better spots on, on every, any given Sunday is, is starting to, uh, to turn back. Uh, but, you know, it was, just, it, it was a long, it was a long road for me. I, it was actually, I don't want to start rambling too, too much, but my path was, so when I was 16, 17, 18, I was like the guy right there. I was in, there's a ESPN magazine article you that you know how they do those ESPN next. Uh, so Kyrie was on the on the cover of that when he was at Duke, uh, and I was on like the fourth page, right? I was the next in motorsports, and uh, so then I signed. I'm sure you guys who don't know who Richard Petty is, uh, I signed a development driver contract with them, uh, and it was a five-year laid out deal right you're going to go here then we're going to get sponsorship and you're going to go to the xfinity series and you're going to go to the cup series and you're going to make millions of dollars and have a boat and a house on the lake and everything's going to be good so we start going and everything was great uh one so what would be like double a is is a series called arca uh and we won four out of the five races uh that we were in there and everybody's all you know everybody's saying oh man we got our guy right and meanwhile i'm a 18 year old kid right thinks that the world's laid out for me or if it's not then it should be uh and ended up the team couldn't get so they they stuck me in an xfinity car that was a 15th to 20th place car and up until that point in my career i never realized that a 15th place car couldn't be a fifth place car it was always my dad in my ear saying you're not driving it right you're not driving it hard enough so what's uh, uh, um not to catch you off, but uh, yeah. um, I'm big into cars. I mean, one one of the kids that works for me we used to run open wheel dirt track, and he was on a similar deal. So like yeah. I've always been into motors and racing and the whole deal. But can you talk about the difference between a five car and a fifteen car? Oh uh, well, in the Cup Series, it's even more. Uh, it's even bigger than than. Uh, so the the so I'll tell by the team that I race for in Cup, right? So it's. Uh, the team I race for in Cups, Go, Go Fast is his name. Uh, and they are historically a 28th to 30th place team just because the budget they have. So they, they don't get any manufacturer support beyond just some sheet metal uh, where the bigger teams get wind tunnel time, uh, all these uh, sim uh, simulation, uh, 
K rigs, every, everything that would make a race car go fast. Stuart Haas, Penske, uh, Roush, all the, essentially the Ford factory teams get, uh, where a team at the bottom of the totem pole, like ours, that doesn't buy into a, uh, technical alliance, uh, kind of gets the scraps where it was left over. Uh, so our team's budget somewhere between four and a half and $6 million a year where we're racing against teams spending 20 to 25. Uh, so, you know, then it just starts the cycle of, uh, getting behind because 36 weeks in almost essentially in a row, I think we get three off weekends between, uh, Valentine's day and Thanksgiving. So, you know, when you've got 17 guys, thrashing every week just essentially to get a car ready to go back out on a Wednesday to the next racetrack we go to you can start falling behind in little nuances uh in the, on the arrow side arrows the key I mean you could put you could put a strip on if you're a car guy you, you'll you'll kind of get this so the it's all about drag to downforce right so if you put a strip of grill tape half inch on the front of the car it'll make the radiator run hot but if you're, if let's just say you run those cars to at 208 degrees, if you can stand it being 295 and you can add another half inch of grill tape, that's more downforce, less drag. Uh, and when we're on a, so there's different tiers of, I'm really getting technical here on you guys. No, uh, yeah, fucking, I'm dude, I could not so be then, more stoked for this podcast with the technicality aspect. So, so then there's different. Uh, tiers of engines, right? I mean, you could you, you essentially lease the motor because you're leasing the R and D behind the engines. You're actually not going to open the Jex catalog and ordering a you know a 358 cubic inch small block to go in your car. You're actually leasing all the uh, just the research on fuel mapping and intakes and uh, valve train and. I mean, there's a rule book though. Like, like there's a rule book that's set out with like, Hey, it's gotta be a certain cubic inch. And then it's, and then it's really the expense is really in finding the tricks inside. Yeah. Like, like everybody's supposed to hit this, but like, as you know, I mean, it's, uh, um, like I, 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 I forgot the deal where it was if, uh, I forgot in the racing deal, like back in, um, in, and I know this from the open track, the dirt car racing, that if you beat somebody, uh, they can buy your motor kind of a deal where that's, like, that's a, claim, that's a claim rule. That's what it's called. They don't do that in cup series. I wish they did. Um, but that's, there's the majority of the stuff on our cup cars, maybe not mine, but the guys that are winning races and compete for championships, the stuff that they have on their cars is essentially priceless, right? You couldn't buy it because there's hours infinite hours of research and development and machine time and just proprietary uh, property that they don't want to get out there. So, uh, you know, the, and then back to the motors, there's, there's different tiers of engines. So if you want to buy what they call an A tier motor, it's 90 plus grand a race to lease that engine. You get it a week before and you give it back after the race. Our team gets the B tier engine, which I'm not sure the exact price on that, but it's, somewhere around half so you can imagine if a team spending half the money of what an eight team spending you shouldn't expect the same you shouldn't expect the same performance uh you know they they say for the sales sake that that it's close but if i'm the one paying 90 grand i would hope that the guy paying 45 isn't on the same playing field as i am so that there's that uh you know and and that really just turns around into what the economical model is uh you know if we 
spend three and a half million dollars on an engine program, then all of a sudden now we got to cut four or five more guys pay or just four or five guys off payroll completely. Uh, so our team and their business model, they just decide to do that, that, that beats your motor and keep more guys on the payroll. That way they can make the cars a little bit nicer. Um, and, and it's just kind of the, the chicken or the egg, right? Cause you, you got to have good people to make your cars run fast, but you also got to have all the right parts too. So that's kind of what, you know, there's some races every year where we can jump in, whether it's Daytona or Talladega and run good. Um, but the majority of the time when we go to a mile and a half, you're such at the mercy of, uh, how much aero downforce your car makes and how much power you have that, uh, the teams that have the resources just kind of obviously rise to the top. just like an AO sport. Uh, with the motors, um, does everybody lease their motors? I mean, is that universal? The- yeah. Well, the, the guys in the back that they, that are trying to get a, you know, 15 grand a race, they, those guys buy it and they just, just run the shit out of it. It still puts a rod up the side. Yeah. yeah but I the mean, guys, who, the guys who are uh, pretty much, I would say the top 32, 34 guys are leasing motors. So, I mean, it's like a constant turnover. I mean, they probably build it to spec. They run it. It's all tuned up, ready to mm-hmm. go. They drop it in and just fucking go yeah. beat on it. If it blows up and you leased it, you hand Absolutely. it over, they give you a new one. Absolutely. And that's what it is. So NASCAR uh, starting to tighten that up a little bit. It was, you can run a new motor every race. So that's what the difference between the, the top tier guys and a B tier guy. Those guys would run it one race and we would get it run it for three races. They'd change some stuff on it and then uh, get rid of it. So uh, I think that everybody has to run uh, a motor for at least three races. That way uh, it kind of doesn't get too out of hand where guys are running 36 motors where it kind of makes everybody run 11 to 12 because uh, right now the uh, probably the engine di- the engine bill is probably the biggest uh, disparity uh, in in the Cup Series. And I think NASCAR is trying to to get their handle on that. And and if they can make the problem is is there's if you look on the road if, when you leave the podcast today you drive around there's probably less than two percent have a push rod V8 in them anymore, right? So NASCAR is aware of trying. No, that's... Trying to, you guys probably have some, but yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, no, I, I yeah, I, yeah. We uh, if, if if you came to our place, you would uh, appreciate the collection of uh, of America or of square bodies and uh, muscle. American oh muscle. yeah, you got what do you what do you have? Some old Monte Carlos or something? No, uh, right now um, I got a '68 Shelby. Uh, I got a '49 Merc, and then uh, I got a, co- uh, a collection of '80s and '70s uh, Chevy trucks. Man, I'm into square bodies, nice. and um, I drive a Duramax. He drives a Cummins. He drives a '86 uh, K30 with a '62 uh, military truck. So we. Uh, you guys are the two percent that are driving around with <laughs> yeah. push rods. Yeah. Oh yeah. I no. I. <laughs> yeah. Like so. It's. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you, dude. It's um, I'm 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 always fascinated by the motors too. I I always thought that all these teams all had their you know some like crazy R and D like motor division, but it's interesting to know that they lease them. Is there? Um, I'm I'm sure there's probably three or four people that everybody leases the motors from. Is there kind of a tier in that kind of piece, or is it only one well, person? Well, it, it essentially it essentially boils down to there's the the manufacturers have their own. Uh, um, their own guys so chevy the, the chevy engines come from hendrick motorsports um the four motors come from roush yates um and uh, to- toyota motors come actually they come from out in california coast, i think costa mesa uh but essentially their hub their their factory team is joe gibbs racing so hmm. uh there's really no 
essentially third parties that are building engines in the Cup Series. There's some in the Xfinity Series and lower series, but uh, those those manufacturer guys pretty much have it locked in where if you want a Ford, you have to get it from Roush Yates, or if you want a Chevy, you want to either can get it from uh, RCR, Richard Childress's race, uh, race team, or, or Hendrick, and Hendrick's kind of the, the big dog on that side of it. Wow. No, I mean, you know, I'm not a Ford guy, but a Roush racing motor. I mean, I mean, I, I literally just saw a dude in our neighborhood has uh, the uh, the Roush F-150 six by six. Did they? With, uh, with Roush makes some. Roush makes some sweet stuff, man. Dude, so, and, uh, and they're, yeah, they're all their headquarters are right here, uh, ten minutes away, and I, about twice a year I'll pop in there just to show face, say hi, and the the level of of stuff they're building at it's like man you, you couldn't even compete uh with those guys if you wanted to yeah no i mean they're so far ahead in terms of like what they have and what they can do um where we were in costa mesa across the strait was um was a machine shop called uh, weissman transmission and weissman built all the off uh offshore boats and uh you know one day we we're there and i'll um it was kind of late and i hear this like you know, uh, some screaming outside, and it was Robbie Gordon's uh, um, <laughs> his trophy truck that they were building a new yeah. transmission for, and they were out there oh, basically yeah. doing hot laps, testing it, and like, as, and then I <laughs> yeah, we were on a podcast, <laughs> yeah. and then when I was at SEMA a couple of years ago, I saw them and went over, and they were like, "Hey, aren't you our neighbor?" And I got to talk to those guys, but just uh, the amount of time and effort and like mastery that these guys have within transmissions, it's just um, like it always makes me feel good to know that there's people that are like so niche and so obscure that are just such a, like an amazing individual and in what they create, you know, and that's the, that's the part I love about cars and the, you know, mechanics of it is just that there's some dude with like, you know, designing something that'll just blow everybody's socks off in his basement, you know? Well, that's, and to, to your point, that's a good point. Cause it's always fascinating me. I've, I've grew, I've grown up working, building my own cars and he, and I know the majority have pretty much all of it works. But when I look at the just the, the overall scope of it, how it's just a, a heap of metal in different forms, and it all starts off as a block, and it's just a bunch of metal chunks with either stuff that makes stuff stick together or stuff that makes it actually not stick together, making a car go 200 miles an hour. It's like, holy crap, man. Yeah, but not only go get, 200 miles an hour, but be able to survive a crash at 200. I mean, like the full chromoly chain, uh, you know, frames and the welding and like – I, I mean, you know, like there's a joke like, uh, you know, you want to be able to weld like a NASCAR, you know, like to be able to go in and, you know, and then they stress test that stuff. I mean, I have friends that uh, are fabricators and all the trophy truck, uh, truck stuff out in California and just seeing like, uh, like I can weld, but like what those guys do is like, you know, orders of magnitude better. And it's just to see it oh, yeah. like, God damn, these guys are good. Yeah. Those guys, that, I'll tell you, those trophy trucks guys that, that um, that's company that sponsored me a couple years ago called U theory it's college and company they have a couple of trophy trucks you probably saw the crash uh it, it, they were qualifying at uh parker uh maybe two three days ago and the guy dicked it and flipped about 15 times and oh, yeah. whitehead is the guy's name so they were uh, they're a good friend of ours he actually had neck surgery uh, this past weekend so I, I think he seems to be doing pretty good but i've seen those trophy trucks up close forgot who was the guy who built them but they just got them when i was torn their facility and and like you said those welds those those welds are probably i would say nicer than what some of them are on our on our cup cars those guys are are badass yeah my buddy's a head fabricator for um um the herps um terrible herps yeah which is you know yeah. the biggest trophy so i've been over to their place a bunch and 
uh, like just the level of cleanliness. It's like, you know, walking in these NASCAR shops. I mean, I've never been to any of the NASCAR stuff, but like whenever I see it on TV or, uh, you know, I know there was like some gas monkey show where they, they built something and just seeing like the level of cleanliness. I was like, man, that's, uh, it's like an oh, operating room, right? Oh my God. I'd be like, God damn, they must have a full-time staff of individuals that do nothing but just clean those places. Sanitize. Oh, it's, it's maybe, maybe not so much, maybe not so much at our place, but it, like Penske, <laughs> uh, Ditto. Hendrick, so uh, no, to what you just said. So Penske has a full-time guy. They got several janitors over there, but there's a full-time guy there. The entire floor at Penske is this like imported Indian tile. And if you drop a wrench on it, it'll crack it. So there's a guy full time that his job is to put the suction cup, pick the tile up, put a new one in all day long. Wow. Well, and, and the, the other thing, which is killer, and I'm, dude, I'm sure you're on this, is like uh, all those uh, NASCAR shops and everything, they always have like these like little mini museums where they'll have all the cars. And like, to me, that's the most amazing thing when you can see actually like, hey, we won, you know, Daytona and this, and they, they keep them, you know, like, um, you know, like prizes. And it's pretty awesome that they're, you know, you're like, wow, look at all these cars. And they're like, oh, yeah, we got a whole bunch more in there. And you're like, God damn. Like, they just, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and that's kind of a, it's kind of a sad realization. I mean, probably back in, you know, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, these dudes were, like you said, like your dad just, you know, wrenching on their cars. They had their buddies. They went out and they raced and things were even. And now that the money has gotten, I mean, it's like, you know, same deal with trophy trucks. I mean, those yeah. guys are throwing so much money that unless you have the ability to pay that level of cash, I mean, it's tough to, tough to win. Yeah, man. The more money you got, faster you go. But it's all good. There's uh and and the light the end of the tunnel for me is there's there's gonna be some light where uh that over the next three or four maybe not even two or three years there's gonna be a lot of driver turnover with some older guys uh, as we already see the, I think the first dominoes fall with Jimmy uh, he's retired this is Jimmy's final year uh, and, and that's obviously gonna vacate a pretty sought after seat and there's gonna be probably five or six more guys follow suit uh, and, and that are over, you know, 40, 42 years old. And, and when that time comes, I'll have, I'll, I'll have a good mix of experience and a fan following. Um, and I'll be, you know, 29, 30 years old, which statistically uh, the prime for a driver is 30, 39. So oh, I, I'm wow. still got, a, I still got a little time yet to go to uh, hopefully jump in something good. I can win races in, but for now I'm just gaining some experience and, and having fun, you know, it's right now with, with go fast, it, it almost feels like, you know, one notch above when I was doing with my buddies and going to the racetrack when I was growing up, because it is a family run team and all of our, you know, I know everybody's names at the shop, right. And you're, you're essentially going to work with them every weekend. And, uh, you know, so that the, the pressure is low in those situations because you know, uh, the chances of you winning beyond Daytona Tau digger are, are slim. Uh, but you know, there's also races inside the race, uh, and there's there's teams that we feel like we're on equal playing fields, and those are the guys we're trying to beat. And and when you have a team that probably has more resources than you, having a bad day, and you can get up there and, and get them, that that's like a win for us. Problem is, you can't get on social media and pop champagne over a 24th place finish, right? But uh, those well, are a you win. You could. You could. Be sure like an idiot. Let me tell you, on <laughs> social media, people fucking pop champagne over a hell of a lot less. Yeah, that's true. That that is true. But I'm not one. So, no, no, uh, and, and and me either. I mean, it's uh, yeah, man. Like, um, you know, not to quote, you know, the best driver in the history of driving, Ricky Bobby. You know, you're either first or you're last, and yeah. Know. Well, so. I've been I've been last quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> but I'd say 
some of these guys that win, Kyle Busch, the, the guys – I mean, granted, Kyle Busch is driving for probably the best team right now, Joe Gibbs. He, he's driven for the two best teams, Hendrick and Joe Gibbs. Uh, and, and he's obviously a generational talent too. But those those guys that win a lot, man, those guys take it for granted how easy it comes because, you know, I, when those guys blow my doors off and lap me for the second or third time any particular week, uh, I can assure you I'm driving a hell of a lot harder to make my car go around the track than they are theirs. So uh, I, I would love to trade with them some days. Now, granted, I don't think I can I, – I, I would like to believe I could drive – Kyle's car as good as Kyle could, but I'm not naive enough to think that, uh, you know, it would take a, a little bit of learning curve to figure it out. But I can guarantee you, he would he would not have a lot of fun driving my car every Sunday. So. Would, uh, um, <laughs> have you ever had an opportunity to ever uh, drive up and like drive somebody else's car? No, like, back in the day, you used to be able to kind of do, you know, if, if I would be able to, because me and my buddy Joey Joey Logano, me and him were good buddies. I was in his wedding, so like back yeah. in the day. If it was 10, 15 years ago, I could go to Blake, Joey, jump in my car and just see if it's me or how this thing drives. Give me some, give me some help. And back then they would do it. But now there's so many, there's just confidentiality agreements and NDAs. And, you know, there's no chance, especially a Kyle Bush, Kyle and I get, get along pretty well, you know, especially him driving a Toyota and me driving a Ford. There's no chance they would let him drive my car. And even with, Joey driving a Ford, there's no chance that Penske would let him drive my car. They would just make up a million excuses on, you know, why it might not be safe or this or that. They just, everybody wants to keep that information. And it, it, I mean, I guess it is intellectual property, you know, dri Joey's driving style versus mine, and they don't want any of that getting out. Uh, but uh, yeah, so to, to what you just asked, yeah, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to drive what I consider a race winning car. There's there's been opportunities where I've had to choose driving, I guess, a lesser caliber cup car over taking what sponsorship I have to a higher caliber Xfinity car. Uh, that's that's usually my off season uh, decision I have to make whether I want to take because it's ass backwards. If I went to a high caliber Xfinity team, let's just say Junior Motorsports, for example, they charge one hundred and forty, hundred fifty thousand dollars a race. <laughs> where I can take my sponsorship to go fast and they supplement it with some of their uh, purse money and some of their sponsors and it gets me the whole year. So I could go either bet on myself for five or six races in a good Xfinity car, or I can go and run the full year and make a decent living and be raced on Sundays. And with a kid coming in April and, and I'll, and I'll, you know, some bills and trying to have to do things like an adult, I've had to choose, uh, you know, the lesser cal the, the lesser competitive option of the two, just to essentially live and put some money in the bank. But hopefully, the the experience I'm learning, you know, doing what I'm doing now can translate into a, a winning car here in the next year or two. It, it sounds like, um, you know, in typical in life, and I was trying to tell somebody this the other day, uh, I had somebody hit me up on a training program and they were like, you know, hey, what if I do this? And I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, the person that can stay in the stay in the game, whether it be training or whatever it is, the longest that has the usually has the greatest success. So as long as you can continue to race and, uh, you know, it seems like if you the longer you stay in, all of a sudden, just through a war of attrition, guys will retire, guys come out and then guys elevate. But uh, yeah, I was, was going to ask you on, on the technique. I mean, it's just. You know the skinny pedal on the right and go left. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
there's a lot more to that than you'd think, man. You, can, you guys, have you ever been to a race? So I did all the, uh, I did the Richard Petty experience. I did it at, um, in Kansas City. We did it in L.A. We did it at Talladega. We did it everywhere. So I've done it like five or six places. And uh, they had a deal. They were uh, trying to partner with the NFL. And um, so as a uh, deal, they were like, hey, do you guys want to go race? I'm like, fuck yes. So yeah. we got to go do those. And, uh, dude, there was so much nuance. I mean, and, you know, I'm just a dumb NFL player getting to go race. And, uh, but, yeah, like sitting there, like going over all the nuance and the technique and all that. I'm like, fuck, man, yeah. this is awesome. Yeah. And, and imagine driving a car that actually is supposed to go fast. <laughs> <laughs> dude, I was, uh, I was fucking riding the dude's ass. He kept, like, waving me. And all I'm thinking is fucking Rubin's racing. And so I was trying to hit yeah. him. And the dude's like, were you Should've... trying to fucking hit me? I'm like, well, yeah, aren't we Should've... supposed to? Just spun him out. Oh, dude, I, uh, I <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I probably should have in hindsight. Uh, and then I just got to the point where I was like, just get out of the fucking way. And he's like, dude, you'll wrap it up. I'm like, well, then fucking let's do it. Yeah. Now there, now there's a big difference. Uh, when actually, when I was I was in high school, I was like the instructor. I would pass time and make a couple bucks doing the rich paid driving stuff, and I'd give people rides and scare the shit out of them, you know. <laughs> so there is a there is a distinct difference between driving a car fast versus driving a car right to its limit. Uh, and, and that's the difference. What I, what I've found is I, I probably wouldn't consider myself a great driver. Just if you look at my statistics, statistics are not great, but in my, the lower divisions, I was the best in everything. I'd always, I, not always, but I'd win majority of the time I raced against kids. Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, like Brian Blaney, all these kids growing up that are the next phase of the young guys I was racing against these guys and beating them more often than not. And the, the guys that can get that, that when they go to the edge and you're in the, and you have a feel in the wheel of when you're the, so the radials, the builds are all different for different tracks and grip levels and all that stuff. But the guys, guys like Kyle Bush and Jimmy Johnson can put it on that very edge of grip before that radial chatters or slips, uh, because there's all, there's just always that little more. Uh, and, and if you're driving it on that, that razor thin edge of, of, of grip or slip, uh, that's when, that's when you guys, you got guys back in the fence and stuff like that, but it's hard to find that little bit and go a little bit more. Because your brain always says you need to go a little faster, a little faster. But there's guys who actually can live in that zone uh, consistently, and that's the difference between the guys that can do it good and the guys that are that are great at it. And uh, you know, I, I felt like in anything. So I'm, I've always been like a slow, not necessarily a slow learner, because I can usually pick things up pretty fast. But I've always crept to that to that limit, right? Every when I was 15, 16 years old, ride, driving full size cars, it took me all year to get to where I was comfortable being on the edge and every level and every different change that the cup series makes, it takes me a little bit. Uh, I sent, I, I guess I didn't have growing up the opportunity to crash because I only had one car I brought to the racetrack. I only had me and my buddy working on the car. So the last thing I wanted to do was bend it up. So I always had that little bit of reservation when it came to pushing it a little bit more. It was just, it was always like incremental and a little bit at a time. We'd go somewhere, I wouldn't be fast in practice. I'd be a little bit better in qualifying. And by the end of the race, you figure it out. So it's kind of been like that in the Cup Series where I started my career and it was real slow 
incremental in, incremental improvements. And now I feel like I'm to the point where uh, I, if I started my cup career in, in something that was capable of winning, I, I probably would have got pushed out pretty quick just because they wouldn't have allowed me the time to learn. But now uh, with some driving for some of these teams that, uh, that I have, it's allowed me with no pressure uh, and low expectations to learn and get to that limit. You know, the limit of my car, just off the basis of the, the amount of aero grip it makes and the amount of horsepower it has, uh, is going to be less than the capabilities accomplished the car. Uh, but I feel like once what you, do you get think his, to... What do you think his horsepower makes? I mean, like uh, conservatively. Well, well, there's different packages that NASCAR has, um, but I would say that we're probably, I don't know, our, our engine motor says we're seven to ten off, but I think that's probably a little bit less than what what the video shows every week but I, I don't think that we're drastically off i don't think he has 50 more horsepower than i do it's just all those little knickknacks and how the body moves and how the roof lowers under under arrow load to gain another 200 pounds downforce mm. uh, and that way he's able to keep his foot in it where i'm just essentially having to lift or uh, i'm not quite as comfortable to lean on the side because the side's not pushed in and making a big concave scoop to essentially keep the car stuck. Uh, so there's lots of those little little nuances that hit little tricks that his car has just from people spending hours in the wind tunnel and yeah. also being back at the shop while the, when those guys are gone on the weekends, Thursday through Sunday, they've got, you know, 30 guys at the shop massage, massage on the car for next week. Uh, so that's where uh, in a small team like ours, we start getting a little bit behind. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't think that the motor is the reason I think it's one of the reasons how we're, we're just, we're essentially 5% off in every area, uh, where, you know, some more people, a little bit more money, a little bit more budget, some more manufacturer support could close that gap against the teams that are spending 30, 25 to 30 million. So, uh, when you add up that 5% off in, you know, 15 areas, now you're a second off the pace and a second a lap adds up pretty damn quick yeah it's like the uh trajectory like one degree over the course of you know yeah. like like long duration all of a sudden this is right. massive deal so it, yeah, it makes 500, sense 500 miles or 500 yeah. laps of bristol and you're you're it's a 15 second lap and you're three tenths off the pace now all of a sudden now you're looking at seven or eight laps down but there's different you know for the daytona 500 for example it's a different style of racing where uh you're drafting uh and and the the advantage of the draft overcomes the disadvantage of what we call dirty air so if you get behind the car if you get behind the car essentially the, the air is not as clean as if you're by yourself right if you're behind the tractor trailer on the highway and your car starts you know you start going like this you feel that that's when just the air is turbulent so it essentially has that and you don't have as much downforce you have about half a downforce uh is what the car leading or has clean air has uh, but at a place like Daytona that's banked a lot, and it's, it's big, it's two and a half miles, uh, the dirty air and, and the loss of handling isn't as much as the advantage of being able to have that least, that lesser resistance of, of the draft. So um, should I shut that blind? blind? No, I just figured God was smiling on you. It just got all bright. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He's like, yeah, he's like, hey, you need a little light of sunshine. I mean, yeah, but it's if, up to if, you, pal. If you're driving behind a big tractor trailer, too, though, you're drafting and uh, don't have to cut as much wind. So then, therefore, you don't have to use as much uh, fuel and yep. you can keep more in deal. I mean, that's uh, pretty standard when you're driving on the highway. You can get behind a tractor trailer and 
let them pull you a little bit. Yeah, save save a little gas. But you know, for for our so let's just when we when we like this is how our game plan is. When we go down to Daytona, we're gonna qualify between twenty eighth. I can already call it now because I've been down there for four years now. I know how exactly it's gonna work. We're gonna qualify between twenty eighth and thirty first, just because our body's not quite as slick or our parts don't move under load like some of the bigger teams, and they're not. We don't push the envelope quite as big as much as the other teams because our risk versus reward isn't quite there. Those te- if those big teams get caught for something or fined for something, they'll write a fifty thousand dollar check and, and no problem, right? If we get caught for a fifty thousand dollar fine, then that's a big a big deal. So. We'll qualify somewhere between 28th and 31st or 32nd, and we're going to be able to stay at arm's length of the pack because that bubble of air, I can just essentially keep my car there, and if they wreck, I'll slow down and let it pass everybody who wrecks, and the last 10, 12 laps, you jam it up and pull the belts tight and jam it up in there and see what see what you, what you end up. So we ended up, our super speedways were really good last year. We finished 6th, 7th, and 11th. Uh, so we had a, a pretty good speedway package doing that. So I'm excited to get down to Daytona. It's it's not fun, essentially, being conservative and riding around the whole race. But the only lap that pays is the last one, and Daytona 500 pays about five times more than all the other ones. So I want to be there to uh, cash a pretty big check at the end of the day. No, I've I've been to the Daytona 500. I mean, we uh, we get to go down in the pits, and I was telling these guys that as we were walking through the pits. Like, it's like a fucking idiot. We were just kind of strolling along, and uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Dude, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. almost hit us. And I remember being like, "Man, that would have been fucking awesome." Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. way to go, dude. He fucking dude. He came in there so fast, and uh, like, I thought I was far. I mean, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty good. But I mean, uh, I remember the day before we tried to run up the embankment on the sides. It's fucking like there's you're not getting up there. What is it, like a thirty degree deal? Yeah, it's like thirty one degrees there. Yeah. That's so Brist- Bristol is the most. <laughs> Bristol's 30, I think 34, that one's hard to get up. Yeah, that, that's that's also, that place is shaped like a cereal ball. I don't know if you guys are yeah. familiar with Bristol. It's a half mile. It's where they played that football game, Virginia Tech and Tennessee. So it, that that should be a bucket list for the night race at Bristol is awesome. Just the just the, the amount of, I think that's probably the only, what I, what I tell fans is it's the only race that's comparable to the Daytona 500 in, in sense of energy before the race and, during the race, the racing's good. So, Bristol is one of my favorite tracks to go to. Corey, talk about um, like just the youth development for the sport. I, I, are you still playing football and soccer and baseball, and then just like racing on in between that, yeah. or is it the other way around? It's just like full time. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, training's a, a pretty big aspect of what I think everybody does now. It used to not be used to not be a big, I guess, factor. But then Jimmy Johnson comes in and he's the, the in shape guy and he starts winning, you know, almost every other race he runs. So it was like, oh, maybe this fitness stuff actually has something to do with it. So I, I mean, I try to stay. My my theory on working out was I used to just work out so I could eat whatever I want. Uh, that was my theory for a long time. It's but not now a bad theory. It's not bad. A lot of us started there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I actually started having to, to train for, uh, you know, a certain criteria what i was looking for whether it be heat training or core stabilization or or, or whatever and i've kind of molded that and being 28 i i can't eat whatever i want anymore because it stays on there it doesn't quite burn off as easy so that's that's kind of morphed 
yeah, and, and you know that it's cool to see because it used to be the the young guys. Well, now we're all you know twenty five to twenty eight nine, and we're instead of being talked talking about racing on Sundays, we all are racing on Sundays. And now there's you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old kids coming in, and they're the young guys. So uh, you know NASCAR tries to still push us as the young guys, uh, and we're kind of I guess the next wave of guys coming in, and just like the guys before us, man, there's going to be there's going to be another wave. So you got to try to stay on top of your game, try not to fall behind and uh, try to stay on top and, and, and make sure you're still got something to drive and hopefully jump in something where you can, can show what you're capable of one day. And then what's, what do you, what's your daily driver? What are you rolling in? Caravan? Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very underwhelming. It's a, a 2006 Lincoln Mark truck that I bought from my grandpa. Huh. <laughs> All right. So you big yeah, Ford so guy? I, uh, are you a Ford guy just because of, no, no, my grand. So my grandpa bought that. I'm, I've never really, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm a car guy. Um, I had a '70 Charger I was building. I got a Hell, uh, Hell Crate package with the six-speed Tramec transmission and very nice. Okay, sit, sitting in my shop. I was gonna put it in a '70 Charger, uh, and I was tinkering on it, and it, it was really a rust bucket when I stripped it down and blasted it. So I sold that. I still got that package sitting there. So I'm trying to find something to put it in. I'll probably end up putting it in like a 70 Cuda. Got got my eyes on one of those to kind of resto mod it and lower it and put wheels on it and make it sweet. But uh, everything I've driven on the street is pretty underwhelming. Uh, my first car was a was a, a 99 Pontiac Bonneville supercharged. Had a Nintendo 64 in the back. Nice. That was sweet. I fell asleep driving and crashed that into a tree. Uh, man i am going too slow dude i love all the old cars from nascar like uh, um uh, dude i i constantly am looking for like a uh like a 69 or sorry like a 68 chevelle that i can do like the round wheels on i like on uh like round out the fenders and then the other one to be like a 73 chevelle and be able to do that i mean all the uh, like 70 you know was it like 69 through 72 people get pissed if you cut those up but i would love to cut Uh one of those up into like you know I saw. Like, I was actually looking at something on the internet the other day. Somebody made a uh, actually took a, one of a Carl Edwards old cars, left the wheels and everything on it, and put a, a '69 Charger body on it. It was sweet. Wasn't that but, uh, uh, the Roadkill guys uh, built that? Um, I, I don't. I don't remember, but yeah. I think it might have been. Yeah. Uh, they had a cup motor in the whole deal. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so my so the three cars that I that I want on my bucket list would be just. Some, like a project car to put that Hellcat motor in because it's been sitting there at my shop for two years now. I want to put in something. And I I think that a 69 Charger was my originally was what I really wanted, but I think that everybody kind of has a 69. They're not original anymore. Well, uh, even though Dukes of Hazard. I mean, what, yeah. uh, what the Dukes of Hazard, what, was that 68? Or was that a 69? They had 68 and 9s. Yeah. And then uh, so I've, I've kind of changed that into like a 70 Cuda because you don't see those around very often uh, unless they're at Barry jackson for some there, ridiculous yeah, amount for of money three and a half million dollars yeah. yeah so i need to find one that's not numbers matching it. yeah you need like a 318 automatic small block car mm-hmm. yeah. yep and then just chop it up yeah. so that's what my plan is and then i want like an 87 grand national i love those beautiful yeah. grand national and then uh then like a like the Ford GTs, a couple of my buddies have those, like Joe Logano and David Reagan. They just bought those Ford GTs, and they are so sick. Oh, the new uh, one, uh, the six-cylinder yeah. ones. 
So, so when I was in, uh, when I, when I played for the chiefs, there was a dealership across the street from my house, uh, that had a red and white, uh, like Ford GT. And this is like, you know, I want to say 2005. And uh, I went over there to buy it and they wanted like 103,000 for it. And I couldn't fit in it. I'm like six, six. And I, uh, I, I like was so mad that I like didn't fit in it. And, and now those cars are going for like four or $500,000. And I could have like, yeah. I should have just bought it and put it in my garage, but I was so like, ah, fuck, I can't fit. Nah, I just kind of walked on it. That thing would have been such a good investment at that point. But yeah, yeah those, well, that's, uh, what, that's what a lot of these guys do. They, so when they came out with the, the next generation of GTs after the one you looked at, uh, it was, they had like a 500 person waiting list. And if you yeah. were a Ford at that time, you got, you could be like, Hey, sure. cost 450 grand. Do you want it? If not, you're not on the list. A couple guys obviously did it because they're like, these things are going to be worth yeah, crap ton of money. Well, then they made them. So if you got it, um, you had to sign a, a contract that says whatever date that you got it, you couldn't sell it for two years. And apparently John Cena was on on that list and he got it. As soon as he got it, he turned around and sold it to a guy for like two and a half million dollars, paid 400 grand for it. So Ford took it back. Oh, and, and took didn't give it. I don't think they even gave his money back. They're like, we get the car. Sorry, guy, you already knew the deal. No money for you. Wow. Uh, I you know what I I was um I mean I'm always amazed by like uh, I love forced induction. I think it's the fucking coolest thing. It's like free horsepower to me. Uh, but like the fact that they put a you know a, a six cylinder motor in there with. You know, supercharged. I, I think it's twin turboed. Um, I can't remember if it's that or it's a roots charger mm-hmm. or what it is. But uh, you know, to not have a V8 in that car is like. And I, I kind of understand their idea of doing something different. But like, yeah, you know, I mean, that original car that you know Carroll Shelby and those guys ran. I mean, to me, that's you know, when, when yeah. you hear it, it just doesn't sound right. I, I, I agree with that. You know, Je- uh, Jesse James from West Coast, uh, West Coast Choppers lives up the street from us. And he just got that uh, new Raptor with the six cylinder and with the you yeah. know the whole it force induction. It doesn't, it doesn't sound. It just doesn't sound right. He spent uh, a ton, uh, and you know he's got a full shop. I mean, the, his shop is fucking incredible. Uh, but he put his full team of guys on there to try to somehow do something to make that thing sound decent. And like yeah. uh, like uh, like the the lengths he went through from like tune pipes and they tried twenty five different sets of mufflers and this and like I mean it, like they changed everything and finally got it to sound okay. And it still didn't sound right. Okay. No. Yeah. And uh, I just, it just remember. Sounds like, it just sounds like a six cylinder. Yeah. That's what, that's what it is. Yeah. I got. I guess I got, a, I got a question for you. What was like when you went, so what did you go to college at and play football? Uh, I went to UC Berkeley. And then um, I got drafted out of there and went to the Eagles. And then I played at the Chiefs and the Patriots. So, Was there a big shift between, I guess, what was semi-professional versus the shift to professional ball um the jump from high school to college was massive because uh i was 18 years old i didn't own a razor i mean i i like was six four and then when i went to college i showed up and these dudes were all like 23 years old and they had like you know full fucking hairy chests and beards and uh i remember my roommate my first year he he told me he'd been shaving since he was eight and he's like hey you don't have a razor and i'm like i've never shaved and uh he's like really huh i started shaving when i was like eight years old and i'm like well okay but uh, I grew like two inches in college. I went from six four to six six, and like you know, was like two hundred and fifty, two hundred forty five, two hundred fifty five pounds to like three hundred plus. And uh, then all of a sudden, I show up at twenty three, and like these dudes were older uh, than me, obviously, but um, weren't that much more physically developed. So I, I came in and started as a rookie. 
So the jump from high school to college was huge, but that like difference from like 18 to 23, like that maturation process was just massive. Hmm. So yeah, I was, I was the biggest, one of the biggest things I've learned from going essentially from, I guess what would be college equivalent to, to professionals. It was just the, the, the mindset from where you realize like there's a distinct time where you get slapped in the face for me anyways, where you realize your talent alone isn't what is going to keep you here. And that was, that was pretty early in my cup career. Cause you just, you rely on your talent just cause you know, I've, I've raced a lot growing up. So I had a little more seat time than guys around me. And I raced against, you know, grown men when I was nine, 10 years old around my dad and his buddies. So I, I, kind of had my teeth cut a little bit more and earlier than some of these guys. And I got to the cup series and I was like, Oh, all these, all these some bitches can drive a race car as fast as possible. So now I had to, I had to dig down deep and figure out, you know, what I actually had to find and address what my, my weaknesses were and get better in those areas. Uh, so that was, that was probably, uh, the, the most, I guess probably that's one of the most areas I'm proud about. Uh, the, the things that I was weak at, I really worked hard at to, to, kind of be all around whether it be inside the car outside the car so uh, i didn't know i didn't know how that translated from, well, from motorsports to football Well, i mean I, I think um professional sports in general and just really anything kind of fits within it and i think for you like as i hear this it's like um you have to throw yourself in the deepest pool and if you don't throw yourself yeah. in the deepest pool you'll never be the strongest swimmer and like you're the most turbulent yeah. waters and i think what happens um I've forever had this kind of like battle, uh, you know, argument with myself where it's like, is it great men that avail themselves or is it hard times that make, uh, you know, normal individuals do extraordinary things. And then we know them as great men. You know, when you go back and you're looking, you're like, Oh, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and you go, these guys. And they were like, well, it was ex these extraordinary circumstances that happened. Would Lincoln be remembered the way he was if it wasn't for the civil war and the emancipation proclamation and that time in history? Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, his whole deal and like, uh, you know, the national parks and like all these great figures that you go through Winston Churchill. And, you know, the, the, we know all these great men and these amazing individuals because they were, uh, you know, the person, you know, at the forefront in these incredible times. And, um, I always wonder, is it, is it just our luck that we had these great people to lead us at these you know specific times, or is it, uh, average men or just normal people that are pushed to do extraordinary things because of the circumstances, which I think is the latter. So I think in terms of like in terms of like the racing deal, um, you know, uh, like if you uh, you know, if you're a good driver and we've seen this within, you know, every type of sport, you know, iron sharpens iron. And like, you know, if you're the strongest, best dude in the room, go find a new room. Uh, you know, you have to put yourself in the deepest pool. You have to find, you know, the best drivers. And, you know, the fact that you're in this situation where these guys are beating you. And it's because of their bigger budgets. And you're like, well, listen up, motherfucker. One day I'm going to get a big budget. And I'm going to be in that position. I'm going to fucking curb stomp you. But until then, I'm just going to yeah. hone my talent. And I'm going to drive this slightly lesser race car on the, you know, and it's like, but if you don't have yeah. that, um, like, if you don't have that maturation process, if you don't have that lead up, then like, you know, if you just walked in day one, like you said, and they handed you the best car, you would have never developed your skills. You would have never cut your teeth. And if you were there, you wouldn't appreciate all the other bullshit. And so I think for like yeah. a lot of stuff, I mean, I see this with professional athletes constantly, like, um, um, especially the guys where they're so gifted, so young and everything's so easy for them. And then all of a sudden they get to the NFL where everybody's fucking good. 
and they don't mm-hmm. have the skills in place to be like, I used to suck and I worked hard and now I don't suck. You've always been yeah. good. You don't know how it is to have to fucking scrap and work hard and be that guy. And, uh, yeah. uh like that's constantly like with my wife and, you know, I talk, um, I got three kids and I say this to my wife all the time. I'm like, God, I hope my kids experience failure young. I'm so nervous to like have people where you're like, just good at everything, never fail. And I'm like, fuck, dude, yeah. that's not realistic. Yeah, because without a doubt, they're going to get to a point, hopefully, like you said earlier, where you have a support cast around them, you can kind of teach them a lesson versus when they get to be in college or in a career and they haven't realized that, you know, what what their limited amount of stuff they've learned is, is sufficient. So. Uh, that's what, and that's, go ahead. Go ahead. Text. I, I want to jump back now to your, your introduction, your story. So you talked about you were on a five-year deal with Petty Racing and you maybe young, hard-nosed, didn't know the difference between a 15th and a fifth car. And then you had your dad speaking and giving you some principles of driving. So what happened when that contract ran out? Did you, is this when you were forced into that tumultuous water to, to deep dive and find out who you are? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was, uh, so I think I was 19 and, uh, and Petty's more or less came to me like, Hey man, we, we didn't have, we don't have any sponsorship it kind of dried up. And then the car that I was supposed to get in, some kid came into my point earlier, came in and wrote a four and a half million dollar check to essentially take my seat. Uh, and they didn't have the, the resources and people and cars to do another team. And they're, they, they still paid me the length of the contract, but they were, they didn't have anything to put me in. So they kind of let me, I guess, get, let me go essentially. And I had no sponsorship to come with me. So essentially I was at the bottom of the barrel with uh, picking and choosing whatever I can, whatever I can possibly get in. And eventually every single driving opportunity dried up every single one. So I still had some connections in the lower divisions and I actually was, I got hired by a team to be a crew chief and I was running this team 20 years old. Uh, for a team, I was doing a team. There's, uh, what would be, I guess, the single A, is is a, a series called K and N, and it's a NASCAR series. There's an East and a West, uh, and I was crew chief and full time a team on the East Coast that was actually renting space for my dad in their shop, so it was pretty convenient. Uh, and there was three guys working for us there, and I would fly about every other week to Bakersfield, California, to set another the K and N West car up. So I was working essentially two jobs, flying across the country uh, about twice a month. It's a beautiful Bakersfield. And, beautiful Bakersfield. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, beautiful Bakersfield. Yeah. So that was where that team was. And we actually won. We had a lot of success on the East Coast and the West Coast. And I thought that that was going to be my path. I, I was like ready to just hang up the driving shoes. They were essentially hung up, but not voluntarily. It was just because I had no other opportunity. And I, I had my own race car I was dabbling with at the time as well, just to kind of not keep the rust off. Uh, but for a year and a half, I was working, being essentially a crew chief. So uh, a funny story. I was, uh, we lost crew chief in a, a race out west, uh, somewhere in like Portland, Portland, uh, Washington, or Portland, where? Oregon, Portland? Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. I just, I wouldn't even pay attention where I was going to. It's racetrack back home. Anyway, so. We ended up, David Mayhew was a guy who I was crew chief before, and he, he's a badass race car driver. And he, uh, we ended up almost lapping the field. We think we lapped up to third place. And, uh, and those races were televised, like tape delayed, like a couple of nights later. And 
couple of days go by and Jimmy Johnson texts me like six o'clock in the morning. Hey man, like I didn't know you were a crew chief. And so are you, are you, are you crew chief at Canyon West Park? I'm like, yeah, I mean, not, it's not what I want to be doing, but it's what I got to be doing to pay my mortgage on my house. And he was like, well, is that like what you want to do? And I was like, I, I, I guess, I, like, I don't know. I don't have anything else going on. And he was like, well, why don't you just talk to Chad, Chad Knauss, who's crew chief. I'll give you his number and you guys chat and we'll like get you over here and get you in the system. And uh, so a couple days later, so actually Jimmy was watching TV that night, couldn't sleep, turned on the race. And he saw that I was crew chief in this guy's car. And that's what sparked all this conversation. So then Chad Knauss calls me, Hey man, like I know you tried your racing and that dried up. And like, do you want to come over here, Hendrick? And we'll hire you and start working on the 48, maybe move you up the system. And I was like, for for whatever reason, I just had that little bit of feeling like, I don't want to like, I don't want to give it up yet. Cause once you, I mean, that, that would essentially be in like, like you moving from what, what position did you play? I played a garden tech offensive line. That'd be essentially you playing right. To be moving into the offices, right. That would be the, that would be the distinct difference. You can't come back and play again once you. No, well, they always say those, those who can play, those who can't coach. And those who were really good player, they don't get to play anymore. They get to go on TV, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I fuck, yeah, I'm with you. So I, I talked to Chad two or three times on the phone, and he's like, "What are you doing, man? Let's let's do it." And he we had this more or less a deal lined up, and I was like, ah. I went back to him like, "Man, I, I just I don't want to give it up yet. I don't know why I have zero driving opportunities lined up right now, and uh, I just don't want to because I know once I go over there, it's." Though then then the shoes are officially hung up, right? Then you are done, and I just wasn't ready to give well, it up. Well, fucking twenty and, years and, old, dude. I mean, to hand it up and have your whole dream. I mean, fuck yeah. you. Like when you peak yeah, at thirty nine. If, if you, yeah, yeah, if you did hang it up yeah. at twenty, I'd, uh, I, dude. Uh, but I, I can uh, also understand, like, fuck that. The well is well, the well is dry. You got a family. You got a mortgage. You have you have responsibility to take care of. You have to make some hard decisions, yeah. right? There's the at twenty though. Oh god. Well, I mean, dude. There's what you want to do and what you got to do, right? What, what do they say? Yeah. The, the difference between a man and a boy, a man does what he has to, a boy does what he wants to. And, yep. and to to so some extent, but I, uh, I understand. Luckily, luckily, I wasn't – well, I was doing what I had to do at that point, but it wasn't quite what I wanted to do, and I was stuck in between mm-hmm. I was stuck in between that too. And I, I eventually went back, and at this point, I think Chad won. Chad was – like I think he was the defending crew chief at the time, and Jimmy was defending Cup Series champion. I'm like – I don't really want to work for you guys. Sorry. <laughs> and then it wasn't. And then one thing led to another man that, that youth theory sponsor I mentioned earlier, they, they came to me randomly. Uh, I met them. They stayed in touch with them. Uh, they said, Hey man, we, we love the way you carry yourself on social media. Your brand fits ours. We want to help get you back in the car. Uh, and then they gave me some sponsorship money. And then one thing led to another and the snowball started and it started rolling. And then it wasn't, it wasn't 16 months give or take from that conversation I had with Chad told him I wasn't going to work on his car that I was lining up next to Jimmy Johnson in the Daytona 500 a couple of years You're later. Like, so was that, what, yeah. is that how you got your face on your car? What's the deal with that? No, that was that. So last year that was uh, old spice, put it on the hood. So oh, yeah, I, okay. I, no, me, okay. me, me and Jimmy, me and Jimmy are buddies. Anyways, it wasn't like out of the blue. He texted me about that. Like him and I rode bikes several times together and he's been a pretty pretty big mentor do, mentor of mine. Do they make fun of you for having he, your face on the car? I mean, is there like a hungry oh, eyes comment yeah. or you know? Well, 
Right, rightfully so. I mean, look at look at that stupid thing. Well, it's just your eyes. Uh, I mean, like, well, you, and, and your mouth is where the Ford is. It's, well, the mustache yeah. is strategically placed. I like. It. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so this is how this is how it went down. So I, I moved teams to the to go fast last year, uh, and they they got a full time sales guy trying to sell sponsorship, and they came to me about three three weeks before the race with this with this rendering, like, of the car. And they're like, what do you think about this? I'm like, that is hideous. Like, absolutely. Like, I was like, this is a joke? No, no. This is what Old Spice wants. Or, so that Old Spice was pushing this new product they came up with. It was a dry shampoo for, for men. And they were, they were wanting to make up what they wanted to say was a, a memeable moment. So they wanted to put my stupid face on the hood of the car. Hit the biggest race of the year. And... So I'm like, can you go back with them to like, to like, uh, is there option B, or like, so like a maybe put one of those like what do they what do they call it half man half horse? Can we put one of those uh, on? Uh, what was it? Uh, centaur. No, uh, minotaur. Yes. Minotaur. Minotaur. Yeah. yeah. Or centaur. Yeah. Look that up. I was like, look that up. Is there, is there, is there any like we put? Is there any other option besides plastering my face? On the I board? say, yeah. You get a Colgate sponsorship, and you continue that wrap down with like big pearly white teeth. Dude, I that's a good. Idea. I would have liked if they wrapped the front of the car with like the mouth, and it looked like yeah. you were just eating. Well, dirt. that's Colgate. Yeah, oh, that's right? good. <laughs> so uh, they went back and said, "Hey, is there any other option?" And they said, "That's it. Is this this option or no option?" So. As you can tell, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you know, man with a choice, man with a problem. Let's go back two minutes. You could For, also, uh, just a quick clarification: a minotaur, John, is a bullhead person, and then a centaur is a half horse, half man. You're right. So you're both right. Uh, you were right because both would be acceptable in this case, better than the face on the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you could do so like right. Marlboro, right? Up, with like a cigarette up, uh, hanging out of the mouth. Oh yeah, like the yeah. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> So we ended up racing that. Uh, we finished 18th last year. Uh, so I think I, I don't know exactly what they spent, but they got about six and a half million dollars of uh, Joyce Julius numbers uh, on social media and TV. Just dude, everybody was talking about it. So what I thought, and, and actually it was received like I thought it was going to be like 60 40. Everybody called me an idiot for putting my face on the. I, I didn't do it, but it was pushed like it was. Uh, did, did they make you say they were like, this nice. was my idea? Yeah. Well, once once everybody thought how great it is, I was like, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> I've been pushing this for this for who years. Would, who would do something like that? <laughs> yeah. that so it was actually about nine, 95.5 received, received it pretty well. I mean, there's, oh, cool. there's a hardcore old NASCAR fan who thought it was dumb, which I was probably part of that five to be any part of the week. But then once I saw everybody was kind of embracing it, I was like, ah, whatever. Man, the crowd at a NASCAR um, – is something special. I uh, like when we like we went to those races and like these dudes sitting there on the scanners, like with the headsets on, like they like is you know they can uh, pick up the scan on like the crew chiefs sitting there like listening to it. Like I, I was like, what are these guys listening to? And then I realized I'm like, oh shit, they're the scanners. And then like seeing like the hillbillies, yeah. fucking I don't know what the fuck they're doing in the center, but like. <laughs> Look like a rock. They're, they're like, not watching their baby. No. There's like Winnebago's and like crazy. Like I I was like, what? Like this is like, a, um, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, like, uh, fuck. It was like a free-for-all. It was crazy. If you, and if you haven't been to an NASCAR race, you just got to go. Go to like Talladega and you'll know exactly what he's talking about. Hillbillies. Just, oh, yeah. yeah. They, 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 most of them probably know there's a race going on. They just go camp because everybody else is. Is there a camp? They just showed up. Gotta love, and is it like a love big party in the middle then? Oh, 
certain certain places yeah, there so is. Yeah, Daytona, Daytona, Talladega, both are, are known for their parties. So yeah, yeah, pretty wild there. Yeah, it's uh, it's something special, dude. I, I never seen anything like it. It was road trip. <laughs> uh, you know, um, dude, you should go. Talladega, Talladega should be on the. So Bristol and Talladega both should be should be on the NASCAR bucket list. So Some infield tickets. When uh, um, I can hook you up for those. No problem. Oh, our our yep. director, it's uh, our director of security at the Chiefs. His cousin or his brother i can't remember how it worked but he owned the biggest strip club in daytona mm-hmm. and so um and uh his name's sean the coolest cat but uh when we went to the daytona 500 we like saw him there and he shows up with like you know like there's like a box and he has like 50 girls and i'm like these girls all look like strippers he's like well yeah it's because i own the biggest strip club in well, daytona <laughs> <laughs> and he's like no believe me uh, like um nothing that happens he's like just watch the center and like i remember we were in the box i'm just like oh my god like the uh like winnebago's like just yeah it's uh it's some special man debauchery yeah mm-hmm. he would love it yeah not every week's like that but oh, there's there's certain certain events throughout the year they get pretty wild yeah. got october 4th Marker calendar. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the best one. We go there twice. I think we go there in May too. But the one in October is. Uh, do you, do you guys ever race here in Texas? Golf. What what's the one here in Texas? Arlington, yeah. Dallas, right? Uh, Fort Worth. Yeah. Yeah, at Arlington. Fort Worth. We've actually, uh, I've been into your neck of the woods twice the last couple of years. I just uh, I've been working with on it for the past couple of years. So anytime I get down to Fort Worth, I try to drive over uh, to to Austin and hang out with those guys for a day or two. Uh, check in so they got some pretty cool stuff i don't know how far you guys are from them but they got some pretty cool stuff over yeah, there. yeah we've dropped in a couple times with coke and i mm-hmm. yeah but so one thing that you talked about early on is kind of like learning learning these principles of like the big leagues right and, and maybe some of those limiting factors that you had to step back and work on you mind talking a little bit about that process and what you discovered about yourself i would say I, man, a lot of them were probably out of the car on just to handle situations and, and people like a professional, uh, you know, because, you know, Grant's experience and seat time in the in the car will just consistently gain over time. But uh, just handling things because, uh, you know, I, I wasn't really in a whole lot of oper- uh, or even I've never really worked a job. Uh, so I've never really had the dynamic of people's feelings and different roles with the team and, and, or even having a boss for that matter. I never really had a, a boss to, uh, to answer to. So that was, it's just, it was a lot, a lot of, I guess it was essentially beating the ego down a little bit and learning to, uh, you know, be in, uh, if, if essentially the, the, if the ship wasn't going quite the direction I wanted, but if the ship was going the direction it needed to and not just pull up the sails and, enjoy the ride type thing. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of that. I mean, in, in the car, there's nuances in the cup series that, that don't relate to the things I've learned growing up, whether it be, uh, you know, pit road speed's a big thing. There's a lot, there's a lot to be, a lot to be gained and lost there just because, uh, you know, there is obviously your, your pit road speed max. Um, so you try to, you try to push that all the way to the limit. But if you go, point zero one mile an hour too fast and it's on a it's all on segmented uh lines so they they know if you go a hair over the speed limit uh then you got to go down for a, a pass-through penalty or whatever timing it is it's different different penalties but you know that you can gain or lose four or five seconds uh 
but just not rolling the, the length of pit road, the maximum amount you're allowed. Uh, and then if you translate that during a green flag run, man, five seconds could be the difference between four or five spots or the difference between getting, being on you know, the last car in the lead lap or being lapped because of essentially the, you, the leader jump leap, uh, leapfrogs you through that transition. So uh, trying to maximize and also not getting comfortable complacent because you got to be, you got to be getting after it every lap. You know, there was certain times, a lot of the time in the lower divisions where races where you don't get multiple sets of tires, you get one set of tires for say a hundred laps or 150 laps. You have to manage for the first half the race uh, to have something left at the back end. But uh, so you can kind of pace it. Uh, but in, in the cup series, you go 40 laps and you get a set of, set of tires. So there's absolutely no pacing. Uh, it is a hundred percent every lap for places like Martinsville. That's a paperclip where you're, you have a thousand corners of just making a thousand pounds of brake pressure and your legs trembling and you can't even drive home after the race because your legs shaking so bad from smashing the brake pedal. Uh, just because you have to get, I mean, if you're, if you're giving up a 10th, 10th and a half of every lap, which doesn't sound like much, but that's probably about a half car length. If you give up that for a 70 lap run, that's the difference between, you know, getting lapped once, twice. Uh, it could be, it could be a yeah, lot. So it was re- recently, I'm talking like within probably the last six months, I was flipping through or watching, watching, I don't know if it's open tire or what, what I was watching. Maybe it was, um, Netflix had like that driven documentary deal. With Formula, with Formula One. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Maybe that's when I realized yeah. like or, the margin for error here over this, the, the volume of laps when you're talking even like hundreds of seconds, it stacks up. And at those speeds that mm-hmm. the lengths, man, it's just like, I never had the appreciation for that until, until very recently. Uh, I've always liked going fast and watching cars go fast and loud. Like I, I've enjoyed it, but I don't think I ever appreciated it truly like until that freaking point, you know? So I, that's, that's on the, for example, the pit road, is that something that you, you get reps at and reps and reps? Or you just got to no, figure it you out. Can, they, you can, you could roll it. You could roll it in in practice because mm-hmm. they had the timers and the lines up. But it's just it doesn't translate to real life, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like practice reps versus game reps. Uh, when there's cars on on the pit road and you're weaving in and out of traffic and you're looking down at your your dash because your dash has lights that you got that you set on the RPM because you don't have a speedometer, right? You have RPMs that go off of. So you got a range of RPMs you're trying to stay within and you're looking up, trying to find your pit box and you're looking down to see how fast you're going. You're constantly doing this or, and every pit road's different, you know, different lengths, different widths. Uh, some concrete in the boxes is more slick than others. Uh, you know, different packages like Daytona, for example, it's hard to stop the car. Um, because I, I, the, the hardest thing is Daytona pits because you're, your mind's used to going 210 or so for the last 20 minutes. And now you got to go 55 uh, yeah. and you actually have to, now you actually have to go stop. Uh, so you feel like when you're going 55 on pit road, you feel like you're crawling. And then when you start and you see your pit box and you go jam on the brakes and it's, I mean, you can't stop going 55 to zero and on your streetcar and, you know, a very long amount of time. So uh, that's, that's pretty hard to get your brain slowed down to get in the box the, the right way you're supposed to talk a little bit about i guess for folks I'll, myself what's the environment like in some of these races so it was interesting talking about you know the the paper clip kind of hairpin type stuff and how you're you're basically smashing that brake pedal 
every turn. So what are different mm-hmm. types of environments that you find yourself in, whether uh, it's, you know, high, high turn volume, sharp turn volume, or just oval? Well, every, every track, even though some of them look similar, every track has its own little, uh, little different things, whether it's bumps or asphalt grade or tire build that makes everything unique. So like the first four races of the year, we go from Daytona, which is two and a half mile bank. And you'll essentially be flat out. You'll be, you'll, when you're in the draft and when you're the, you know, about the eighth car on back in the draft, you'll be probably 80% to 75% throttle just because there's nowhere to go. Uh, but for the most part, you're on the mat. Um, and then you'll go to the second race is Vegas where it's a mile and a half, a lot of grip, not quite as much banking. So you'll be lifting a little bit. Uh, so that's a different style of racing. And then you turn around and go to Phoenix, which is about seven, eight, or maybe a mile. And you use the both ends there are different ones up almost essentially a 90 degree corner. And the other one's a real long flat uh, corner. So your braking styles are different there. Uh, so it's just, you gotta be, you gotta be on top of it every week. And, and throughout going to these tracks for the second, third time, I've got pretty good notes on, you know, what my, my feel needs to be and, uh, one of the one of the biggest things I've learned is is how practice uh, balance translate to race balance of the car uh, and what you know because the from the, from our last practice on Saturday there's usually uh, an Xfinity race which rubbers the track and puts more rubber on the track than we when we had all weekend and then we turn around and race the next day with all that rubber if it doesn't rain uh, on the track so the balance of the tracks can be different. So you have to be on top of it and kind of know which way the track's going to go uh, so that we fire off the, the race how you need to. So throughout uh, just gaining notes and, uh, and experience, I kind of have a better understanding of what I need going back to some of these tracks and, uh, and just continue to keep getting better. And then how does that translate to like the physical demands in inside the car, you know? Yeah. So every, you know, different tracks, the flatter tracks put more G load on your body than the ones that, that if you're banked, right, you're kind of getting sucked down versus over, but the places what places where you have that's flat and the cars have a lot of lateral G load, uh, your lower back gets fired up, your neck gets fired up. Um, I try to, I try to train my neck and do different things. And I do, you know, front rack kettlebell carries to try to get my QLs and, 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 uh, course, strong as i can but when you get going 500 laps anywhere uh it starts working muscles that you you can't even touch uh in a gym so the first five or six weeks i'll be pretty sore but uh once my body gets adapted i'll I'll usually end up being pretty good then we turn around so we have three road courses a year and they're sprinkled periodically through the year and you know uh, my body will start getting adequate to all left turns then we go to watkins Glen, which is the fast road course and the majority of the corners are right so my neck will be damn flopped over because my right side of my neck's not strong my left one i can go 500 miles all day and not even have a have a problem but my my right side of my neck will be tired after about practice uh so i I work on actually trying to keep it uh keep it square but it's it's hard to just because you're not you you can't find the muscles in your body that uh just that natural load does Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so I guess, I guess I can compare it to like, you know, anymore, like we, we do one football game a year, every new year's day or with our buddies. Right. right? 
and the next day the next two days you're so sore your core sore your hips are sore because you're not used to doing those movements you can work out and run and do box jumps all you, all you want to but until you play football and make movements that you're not your body's not used to it it lets you know it's not happening well gravity's a motherfucker man. And, and i'm just thinking too uh you remember uh, i guess great america or like even the carnival like the the teacups yeah that would spin around and like you get three yeah, of your buddies the, in there the vomit makers yeah, yeah. i mean is that like the level of g g force no, you're getting on a turn some places like i'd say bristol probably pulls the most g's uh-huh. I don't know the exact number, probably two and a half or so. Yeah. Uh, but it's 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 not the the one time G load. It's just the constant. Yeah, like the the chronic in four hours. In yeah. that uh in in that Armageddon documentary. Yes, remember, I remember. Uh, the slingshot around the moon. Yeah, like uh, what, what did they have to pull? It was like nine G's for like nine minutes or something. <laughs> I forgot what they did in the documentary. I'll have to refresh. Is it, is it movie time? It, yeah, okay. uh, pull that Hang up. On. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, not yet. Um, <laughs> so you're in the. So you. I mean, you, you have all these forces working on you. Uh, you know, for five hours. I mean, let's just yeah. say, Corey. I don't know. You have like a, a, a sketchy burrito the night before. <laughs> the G's are working on the GI tract. Like, what? Do you mm. just gotta let it go? I've never. I've never shit my pants. Some guys have. Okay, guys hang on. Are, Never so shit I, your pants racing or? Yeah. <laughs> no, context, no, I've context. shit my pants plenty of times. <laughs> not in the car, though. I, I, some, guys, some guys pee in the seat. I, I can't get myself to do yeah. it. I've had to pee so bad. I've had to pee so much, so much so that I've even thought while I'm racing that if I hit the wall, my bladder's going to explode. <laughs> I have to pee so bad. <laughs> and I still can't get myself to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's just like a, uh, it's like a, a mental block for me. But well, you're 28 uh, now, and maybe that's what makes you great when you get into your late 30s, because you're just like, fuck it, I'll shit myself. 39. There's no fucking way. <laughs> Give it up. No way. I, I watch dudes used to like during football games would like piss themselves. Uh-huh. Uh Fuck it, I could never do that. Like, it, yeah. uh, I and, no. and I knew dudes had shit themselves, and it never happened to me. I yeah. was like, that's fucking the worst. What? I could probably I. I could probably piss myself. But I don't. The poop is. I, I couldn't. I, I dude, like, I don't think I could do it. It just gets stinky, and you're sitting in well, it. Like, like I, I could be. I, then you're thinking. Oh, then you're thinking about. Yeah, it. yeah. that's yeah. my. <laughs> well, and and then I think about, and this, this is purely just being a dad and like changing diapers, like the ra- the rash. Uh, no, the rash? like like oh yeah the yeah, but like taking the diaper off and being like, ooh, that was a stinky peepee. Like you know, like uh, you've been. <laughs> You've been marinating in that? Yeah, like you, you <laughs> eat a whole bunch of asparagus <laughs> oh, and coffee. And exactly. <laughs> like uh, we, we had asparagus, and I'm like, ooh, I'm like, you've been fucking marinating in that. Let me clean oh, you up, yeah. dude. At that point, I just put them in the shower, you know? But dudes do that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd say there's probably, I don't know, four or five guys every week that do. Yeah. Maybe not, but so I mean, it's not an uncommon thing yeah, for yeah. guys to, to piss themselves. I, I've never done it, but. I mean, what's the alternative, right? Like, thing. if it gets to the extreme point. He's got to fucking hold it like a road trip. Sometimes yeah. well, you got to hold it to the next it. gas station. Sometimes the the valves yeah. fail. <laughs> well, I mean, some, and I'm sure there will be a day where, <laughs> I mean, I make sure I make sure that right before I get in, I go to the bathroom. Yeah, and you take the right approach, right? like and, leading up to it, right? The night yeah. before, yeah. or week before. 
Yeah, he's and, probably not eating I'll, fucking you know, be, like Taco Bell bean burritos midnight before a big race. Like, you know what I need? A dozen bean burritos. Just hankering for a bunch of beans. <laughs> beans yeah. and that yeah, would be, uh, dude. That would be fucking Luke Summers. Hey, uh, I gotta drive a big race tomorrow. I think I need a dozen bean burritos at midnight. Yeah, put them on a pizza. <laughs> but it's it's a good thing he's on the Old Spice sponsorship versus the Taco Bell. Uh huh. That's true. Uh, run for the border. Taquito butt. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> that run for the border thing was the fuck. I mean, you notice they don't bring that thing back, but fuck, dude, that was awesome. Okay, and then I guess growing up at, in a race family, like, are are the race movies that we as not as civilians and, and street riders and our, like, you know, my first car was a 94 Pontiac Grand Am Ooh. with no Nintendo, and it was really <laughs> slow. Um, Sorry, I hate that word. <laughs> but uh, is, is, like, do you have the same affinity? Uh, for like Days of Thunder. Oh, I love Days of Thunder. Yeah, uh, it's still to this day one I mean, of my favorite movies. No, I mean not not racing realistic whatsoever, but it's still just a great movie. Yeah, like the whole Rowdy Burns, like uh, Harry yeah. Hog, like the whole thing. Like there's so much, and, and there's it's so quotable. Dude, oh yeah. Like my brother to this day, uh, we still quote we quote that all the time. Like boy, he got the balls past me on the outside. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is the most quotable movie of all time. Yeah. So yeah, I. I I, I think hell, I think it, Days Hunter was out before I even, even was born. I think it was 1991. It came out. I was born in September 91. 89 or 90, I think. Yeah, it was. Checking it. No, it was in 1990. Okay. Yeah, it was 90. 90. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, so that was a summer. I would love to see them make a. I'd love to see them make a. a with Tom Cruise, a sequel. With, with we can t- only hope with dude. Tom Cruise. Hundred yeah, percent. Well, the Maverick's, the top gun. Maverick's back. Yeah. Ah, uh, dude. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if that if that's possible, then anything <laughs> well uh, you know here here's the thing and we saw what tom cruise is what like 56 i think it's out of how old he is i think so. he was the same age as wolford brimley was when he made cocoon he was 62 born mm-hmm. yeah so 58 he I, he's like almost 60 he looks fucking great you know that's what yeah. uh you know drinking the blood of your you know people the first born child you know, <laughs> of, of the scientology yeah deal. all your scientology slaves Man, Man. I wish I had uh, dude, I'm still fucking uh, completely fucking blown away by the Kobe Bryant thing. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, dude. Uh, and I and I was uh, I still say I've always said like anytime I try to shoot trash in the trash can, Kobe. Kobe. Oh well, from Dave Chappelle. Yeah, when, yeah. He, when he shoots the condom with the the sex contract, you know, with the one where he's like Kobe. He shoots, <laughs> which. Oh God, that uh. Oh, so ironically, the hotel that he stayed in, where that whole deal went down, um, was at the Stedman Hawkins Clinic in Vail. Like that's the hotel you stay at, and I stayed at that hotel, and I was like, mm. yeah, oh. but, yeah, that's a bad deal. But yeah, he, uh, uh, man, like his um, his daughter, their basketball team's called like the Mambas, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, Doug, you know Doug Robinson, I think so. I know, yeah, the name. yeah, yeah. Uh, Doug Robinson's daughter plays on the Mambas. And uh, he was like, they had a game, and Kobe and like some of the parents, they flew the helicopter, and everybody else drove. Mm. And so they lost nine people. I guess it was Ugh. like two of the parents, the kids. Like it just, yeah, bad deal, man. And, his, and his, his daughter. I mean, you imagine forty-one. What did he play like twenty seasons? Mm-hmm. Like fucking like oh, legend. Oh my god! Like to, to have a whole world. I mean, he had to have made he. Like what did he make? Like eight, forty, eight, fifty oh, million, close. forty, fifty million a yeah. year. He, it was he probably made close to a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah, like in salary. Just I mean, like mm-hmm. with the endor- I mean, he he must have made a billion dollars, and to like mm-hmm. 
be 41, have the whole world in front of you and to have that and then to fucking have something. And now he had a, it was his, it was his helicopter and he used to fly everywhere in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a big deal. Like he flew everywhere in that thing. He used to fly, he used to fly from Orange County to Staples Center mm-hmm. for the games. I mean, fucking unbelievable. Mess with the fire, get burnt, right? I was telling text, I think like that is the um, highest prevalence of like of vehicle failures. Is helicopters. Right. I think. I thought it was those little planes. Like, how does everybody that flies in those little planes fucking get a good crash and almost mm-hmm. die or die? Yeah, I don't know. But the thing about a fixed wing is if you do lose power, you... Yeah, at least you can glide. You glide, right? Is that what happened? They lost power? I don't know. I'm just saying in general. But if, if you... A helicopter, on a helicopter falls like a brick. If you lose power, yeah, you have no glide. It's just down. Wow. Right? So that's why... I, th- I think there was Spanton talk, maybe. Yeah, one um, one of our buddies is uh, was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, so he's I'm sure he's got some some recommend. But fuck, man, like I was just, you know, I mean, like uh, so think about that mom. That mom gets up today losing, having lost her husband and her 13 year old daughter, and you still have three kids. Mm-hmm. Man, that's mm-hmm. like I mean, she's obviously not hurting for money, but, yeah, but like, I mean, like yeah. uh, like it, it's not like he left her destitute and penniless. But like, fuck, can you imagine? Like, what does today look like? I I, I, I was fucking like just and the other families, rocked. man. Think about that. Oh, like, yeah. you know, that's what that yeah, sucks. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, any, de- any details uh, so, on how this whole so thing went down? I didn't dig so in. the the other little girl that passed, she's um, she's in uh, Luke's grade. Um, my nephew's grade at his school, and she's she was in three of his classes. Oh, oh man. yeah. Wow. So my brother texted me, and he's like, "Yeah, one of Luke's uh, um, classmates." Mm-hmm. So, mm. so, Corey, I know that uh, just looking there, thinking about Lakers play the Clippers on Tuesday, they're thinking about canceling the game. So, like, the impact that this is going to have, ripple effect, one, on the the players. Well, dude, but hold on. So then one on the players and two on the league. And so I know tragedy is not new in NASCAR. So uh, just looked it up. Dale Earnhardt was the last driver that passed away. This is 2001. Did you... As a, as a young athlete back then, or even with your father, was he still racing at this point? Did you sense this impact after tragedy? Oh yeah. So my uh, my dad won the Xfinity race with that. It was Bush race the day before that. Uh, so we were we were down at Islands of Adventure. I remember exactly where we were. We were watching the end of the race on this. We're by the Hulk. Everybody's been to Islands of Adventure, right? We were standing in front of the Hulk. Uh, roller coaster and there was like a, the little shop with like the foam fingers whatever and there's a little tv on it we were watching it and and that crash happened and my dad's like "Ooh, that ain't good because dad also knew that dale was probably one of the last ones to start switching everything over to like the safety updates and and i mean there were there was no mandates but there was a lot of technology available for safety and, and he was just an old school guy with open face helmet. Yeah, I was going to say, he didn't and, wear a closed face helmet, did he? He wore open face. No, I don't think that was the difference. But, you know, with, with belt technology and, and seat technology that was available, he just didn't 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 switch uh, just because it worked for the 40-plus years he's been driving before that. And it just was a, a perfect storm to where uh, the way the way it hit and the way it went down, it, uh, it, it you know, it killed him, had a basal skull fracture. Uh, cause he had nothing connecting his, essentially his, his helmet. But right now, now we wear what we call a Hans device, head and neck support, uh, where you put it around your neck and it, it clips into your helmet and the belt cinch it down to where when you, if you hit frontal, uh, you know, your, your head can only go to the length of those tethers, uh, to where before they had any of that, the weight of the helmet 
would would keep going and your and the belts would catch your your torso and your head would keep going with the weight of the helmet uh and your head can't your your neck can't take that much pressure especially when you hit the wall at probably 30 g's so um yeah that was uh obviously fan i mean i think dale and hart senior is still probably the fourth or fifth highest selling merchandise driver any particular week at the tracks obviously people uh still remember him and and have a uh, have a, a passion for him. That's why Dale Jr. was so big too. Obviously, he's a personal personal guy, but how he kind of came into the sport at, this, at that timing uh, made people just gravitate to him. So, uh, and, and there was a also a fatality. Davy Allison, I, I, maybe ninety four. Uh, he was actually helicoptering in, helicoptering into Talladega to test, and the the tail prop caught the a chain link fence, oh. wrapped it up. And his whole crew was literally just watching him land and down he goes. And they're like, Oh hell. And ended up passing away. The guy who was, who was riding, he ended up a, a red farmer. He actually lived still, he still races like nine years old. Um, but he, he passed away there. So yeah, that helicopter uh, casualties is, isn't anything new to, to, uh, to NASCAR. And then another guy, Alan Kowicki was a, I think 1990 NASCAR champion. He passed away. Uh, he was, he passed away in a, a, a jet going to, or it might've been a King air, but, uh, going to Bristol, Bristol's notorious for, uh, low ceiling fog. Cause it's right tucked away in the mountains and, and didn't have a whole lot of visibility and, and did this, uh, just, and died there. So, and then another one, uh, this might've been, what was it? Oh, look it up. Ricky Hendricks, uh, Rick Hendricks kid. His brother. There was about eleven people, twelve people on a on a jet going to Martinsville race day morning. Same thing, low low cloud cover, and, and they passed away. That was that was one that impacted our sport probably in a similar way that, that Kobe's did to the NBA. Uh, just uh, I mean, even people outside the league, but that was one that was that hit pretty hard for a lot of people. Yeah, that's uh. <sighs> Yeah, dude. I mean, like as a parent, like to, uh, I mean, like uh, to lose your thirteen-year-old, like oh my god, dude. Like, fuck, dude. Like that's it's pretty amazing. I mean, dude. Uh, um, and of course, like the most poetic dude is Papa Bitch, who's like, yeah, we lost the game. It's not a big deal. Like, and then just fucking went into it. You know, I mean, just mm-hmm. you know, called it like it was. But I was thinking, like, as um, as they were showing like different NBA games, they were showing the kids. I realized that most of the NBA right now is like. 18 to 26 years old, like the majority of like the really good players and thinking about like, okay, Kobe played 20 years. These kids were like four and five, six, seven years old growing up watching Kobe in his prime and trying to emulate him. And like, it's like, um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, for Kobe's, you know, like our generation, like seeing Michael Jordan, like same type of deal. I mean, those kids were influenced by that dude. I mean, they played in his camps, they did everything. So it's just, man, it's pretty, it's fucking awful. Sucks. Mm-hmm. Curious to see what what comes of it. Curious what the deal is, how the failure happened, all that stuff. But well, not that you can change anything. Well, dude, my thought is the amount of dumb things that I've done, and like near near misses with death, and I'm like, fuck, man. It's like sometimes you know your your ticket gets punched, and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, that man, short. Mm-hmm. You know, just got to do as much cool shit as you can, and hope to God. You know. So speaking of that, what's on the horizon for you, Corey? What, what do we got to look forward to for you? 
Well, Daytona 500 is coming up two weeks or three weeks of February 16th. Uh, I'm getting geared up for that. Uh, we actually just had a baby shower on Saturday, oh. so my house is chock full of baby shit everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The plastic nonsense of having children. Where it's just plasticky shit. That's the best it's thing about the kids everything. getting older, man. You get rid of all that plastic shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, actually probably time out, right, because my brother's getting married here in July, so when, when our baby grows up, I'll transition it all over to him. <laughs> um, but just uh, just starting to get in the routine, man. I, I, the honey-do list in the offseason is crazy long, so I'm excited to be <laughs> uh, not away, but I'm excited to get in the routine of going to the shop on Mondays for our post post-race debriefs and then you know having only certain hours of every day to do the honey do list as opposed to every day mm. <laughs> um so it's uh it's starting to starting to ramp up pretty quick we've got a lot of media stuff going on this week for the networks they shoot all their little uh, short bits and all the still shots this week so uh starting to starting to get in the mode of it well, nice man. We'll be watching. Yeah, dude. oh yeah, yeah. Get power at now, the nation now, behind you. Now we're fans. Now we get to actually watch yeah. somebody. And I know. Perfect. Yeah, now you, got, now you got a dog in the fight. Yeah. So oh yeah. You, uh, keep up with me. And I know you. You do some charitable work. You want to highlight what you're doing outside of racing? Yes, I've, I've actually been. So my nickname is Super Shoe. Um, it's been like that since I was like a you know 12, 13 years old, and my, one of my dad's buddies gave it to me. And it's it's comparable to like if. If uh, a good wide receiver, you call them hands, right, or hot hands. So for whatever reason, a driver's a shoe. So my dad's friend gave me the nickname Super Shoe, and it kind of stuck. A lot of my friends call me Shoe for whatever reason. Uh, and there, I, I may, was made aware of a charity that's a, a global charity, but right, right here in Charlotte called Samaritan's Feet, um, and they just provide – they provide shoes. They're, they provided shoes to seven and a half million people of their existence. They started in uh, 03. Um, so they're trying to uh, just put shoes on the kids of, of people in need. Uh, and I guess uh, I didn't know this, but uh, footborne illnesses are the, the second leading cause of death uh, in the world behind AIDS. Ooh. So all the third world countries that people are walking around, you know, if you guys never been in just the layers of trash and, you know, lack of sewage that's in their streets. They're walking around with, you know, cut up Coke bottles and stuff on their feet uh, just for protection. So these guys, uh, Manny uh, is the president and he started, he's from Nigeria. So he came from a village with no shoes till he was 12 uh, and moved to, uh, he got a basketball scholarship, played in college, moved to Charlotte first with a startup software company and eventually had the, felt the call of, uh, wanting to give back and he started the Samaritan's Feet Charity uh, and I've, I've had a lot of fun diving in with them last year I actually had a dream it was weird man I've, I've never really had this recollection before uh, I was sitting in bed one night we didn't have a sponsor for a race in the upcoming weeks and we were just trying to brainstorm ideas and I had this dream of the Samaritan's Feet car uh, and I'm laying in the bed looking at the ceiling fan spinning around like alright how, how the heck are you going to get somebody to pay for a Samaritan's Feet car and uh, I, just, I just felt this like urge on my heart to call my owner at midnight or text him and see if he was up. And I text him, of course he was up. And I just felt like uh, I was supposed to tell him, hey, if you wouldn't pay me for a month, would you put Samaritan's feet on the car? 
And he was like, are you sure? I said, no, but let's get off the phone before I change my mind. I feel like this is a good idea. And uh, so we locked that in for a race at Watkins Glen. And my wife and I were sitting at dinner trying to figure out some good ways to activate it. And she had the idea of whoever donates to their fundraising page uh, would, will write their name on the car. So we, I said, that's a great idea. So we uh, start, we put it up on social media and it started taking some legs and, and one thing led to another. And, and throughout the course of the weekend, obviously TV picked up the story and started running with it. And we ended up raising over 130 grand that weekend for them. And then over the next couple of weeks, we did some more stuff around them. We ended up raising, I think, 210 grand total for Samaritan's feet and, and did a lot of fun stuff. Uh, so that was a lot of fun to kind of jump in and, and be, especially with my nickname being a super shoe to jump in a charity that provides shoes is pretty cool. And, and, and I told, I've been telling everybody, everybody, every, all the drivers, actually a lot of athletes probably have their own charity or foundation, right. That they support. But I, I look at Samaritan's feet. Like if there was a, there was a charity uh, that I would create, it would be that. So there's no sense of starting my own stuff. I'll just jump in and, and spend my time and efforts with these guys and try to help push that cause because they have the infrastructure and all the people uh, supporting that cause. And they're trying to give away a million pairs of shoes every year for the next three years. It's kind of their mission to reach that 10 million pairs of shoes mark. So we're going to be doing some cool stuff this year again to uh, to jump in and try to reach that goal. Killer. Yeah, good yeah. cause, dude. Yeah. Anything else, McCorkin? Yeah. Nope. Corey, man, it's been a pleasure. Truly. Yeah, man, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, so I've got – if you guys sit around and listen to this podcast too, uh, I got a podcast called Sunday Money. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a racing based podcast. We talk about some uh, some gossip behind the scenes that you probably wouldn't normally hear in the broadcast. So if you listen, if you like listen to some off off the beaten path NASCAR stuff, you can tune into Sunday Money. It's pretty fun. Nice. Cool. And then what about social media? Where can we point people? Uh, so I do Instagram's my favorite. Uh, I do Twitter too. Uh, and I'm on all of them cause you gotta be, I'm on, even on TikTok. I had to lock my name and somebody steals it on there, but I don't ever put any TikToks up there. That's my, that's my friend, Bulldog Leo. He's, uh, I thought that was some TikTok thing. He said TikTok and he nah, likes her barking. Yeah. Does the Bulldog, yeah, so Twitter, Bulldog have an Instagram? Twitter, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, man. Uh, at Corey LaJoy, I'm on there. Awesome. Killer, man. Thank you. Thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Corey LaJoy wants you to head over to SamaritansBeat.org to see how his foundation is helping improve the health and mortality of people worldwide simply by offering appropriate footwear in some of the dirtiest environments in our third world countries. You can also find his Sunday Money podcast anywhere that you can also listen to Power Athlete Radio. See what I did there? Until next time, bye! Bye!